Hey everybody, how you doing out there? Dave Smith just saying hello. And this long, gigantic talk you're about to listen to is a talk that I did for my Dharma Live online course, which covers the Satipatthana Sutta. It's about seven talks rolled into one, and it covers the entirety of the first foundation of mindfulness. And if you're interested in joining us and hearing more talks, the Dharma Live online program is offering a discount for the year. You can check it out here in the link. And hope you're well, man. Be cool out there. Later. Okay. All right. Welcome to Dharma Live Online, everybody. So uh, this starting this week and probably for the next 500 years. No, just kidding. Um, I'm going to be uh, going through this mindfulness uh, teaching. You've probably heard of this mindfulness business. Kind of a big topic of conversation around here. Uh, so using two, just two texts, if you, uh, this is Joseph Goldstein's book on mindfulness. I highly recommend it if you don't have it. Um, you know, it's only 400 some odd pages, but like probably, you know, this is one of those books that just lives on my desk. I'll never figure it out. It's kind of like a lot of these Dharma books are like encyclopedias. You know, you don't really read them start to finish. You just look for pieces. Another one that I'll draw from is this uh, Biko Anayo's Direct Path. Deliberation. It's a it's an academic analysis of the Satipatthana Sutta. So I'm just going to do a little bit um, of an overview of the word mindfulness, and we'll get into it. We'll go through. So the mindfulness is um, uh, the teachings are, are called the Satipatthana and the Satipatthana Sutta, which is actually only like if you printed off the entire Satipatthana Sutta, it's like nine pages off the printer. You know, it's like nine pages, and Joseph was able to come up with 500 pages to describe what's going on in those nine pages. Uh, and so why, why is so much going on? Well, we're talking about mindfulness, and we're talking about the mind. And as soon as we start having a conversation about the mind, uh, it's a big topic. Um, so to just kind of think about this word satipatthana, that's the word they got mindfulness from. Um, to some degree, I'm not a great, huge fan of the word mindfulness. Um, uh, it's a word that's kind of entered our everyday lexicon. People use it all the time. Um, they don't necessarily know that it has Buddhist roots and Buddhist contexts. Um, it is, I think nobody would argue this, it is sort of the premier Buddhist meditation. You know, it's definitely uh, mindfulness, the practice of mindfulness wasn't around uh, before the Buddha. Uh, there was plenty of meditation practices around in ancient India that people were cultivating different kinds of concentration practice, different types of Vedic Vedanta practices, but there was nothing even similar to what he was getting after. So it's definitely his idea. And it's really kind of, um, I think probably the greatest um, contribution to human thought uh, was the Buddha's Dharma. And it all starts with mindfulness. Uh, another thing to just mention about mindfulness is there's nothing uniquely Buddhist about it. It's not like the Buddha invented it. Um, it, it so we just want to realize um, that everybody, every human, mindfulness is an innate capacity of the mind. It's something that minds can just simply do, 
like even people who don't know anything about mindfulness who don't have the practice of the mind of mindfulness probably find themselves in many moments throughout the day where they're in the experience of mindfulness but they just don't have any language for that i hope that makes sense it's not i say all that to kind of reiterate that it's really not that special um it's just something that my minds can be aware of themselves that's more or less the whole gist of it is that you can you can sit down quietly and you've all done this we can kind of focus a little bit we can kind of pay attention to the present moment experience and we can kind of notice that there's this cognitive process that is arising in the moment that's always arising and passing away and it can kind of be monitored and uh as much as that's not really special at the same time it's pretty profound um it's actually one of those things that's it's deeply ordinary and deeply profound kind of at the same time so let's just kind of talk about these words there's two words satipatthana there's sati so sati is the word where we get for mind uh, which is probably not a great translation sati means something like it really means to remember so it means to remember it means to recognize um it means to recall or to recollect now it doesn't mean remember as in memories as i know that i have memories i know that things have happened to me in the past but it's more the cognitive function of of, of remembering so it's more of the short-term, short-term memory connotation rather than long-stored memories. So the way that the mind operates is that, you know, like we want to actually, it's probably more in our favor to have better short-term memory than long-term memory, which is what's called procedural memory, is that I can, I can uh, in the context of, let's say, two or three or five minutes, I can remember, I can be aware of what's coming up in my mind, and I can, I can make little selection points on whether or not I want to encourage or follow different habits of thought. And so that's really where our agency lies, is, is in this kind of present moment-ish. So the present moment, we could say, you know, the last 10 seconds or the next 10 seconds, or we could even say more like the last five minutes and the next five minutes. And if you think about it in that way, it's kind of interesting. If I lived my life somewhere in the arena of kind of being aware of what was going on in the last five minutes and a little bit aware of what I do in the next five minutes, if we could live inside that kind of experience, we'd probably be much better off. So we got to be careful that we don't think that the present moment is a short thing that's running a thousand miles an hour that we have to try to pin down. It's, it's more open. It's more relaxed. Does that make sense? We're not trying to like really, we're not trying to become myopic. We're actually trying to become full, fullness of the mind. And the mind is full all the time. It's full of the past. It's full of the future. It's full of me. It's full of others. It's full. And so um, if I can be aware of what's going on in the context of that, I can make a better choice of, well, what is it that I want to do with my time right now? Uh, what kind of uh, 
thoughts am I having? What kinds of thinking patterns am I having? Am I planning? Am I anxious? Am I catastrophizing? And then the question becomes, well, do I want to keep contributing to this? Because that's what mind cultivation is, is whatever, whatever is being inclined in the present moment will have far reaching consequences. Um, so Sati is to remember to recognize kind of everything I just said, you know, be aware, be careful. Um, and also uh, Tana means a ground or a foundation. Um, and so what the Buddha does in the Satipatthana is he, he breaks up the human experience into four patanas, uh, which are basically really pragmatic because he's trying to get us to be aware of these four things. First of all, the body. Can you be a little bit more aware of your body? Most people don't have a lot of embodied awareness. Um, be aware of our feeling tone, whether whether the present moment has a pleasant feeling or an unpleasant feeling or a neither or an indifferent feeling, um, or whether it's unpleasant, whether it's painful, whether it's uncomfortable. Uh, and then he, so we can be aware of the body, we can be aware of the feeling tone, we can be aware of the of the mind state, the state of the mind, the mental state, or the attitude of mind, um, and then we can be aware of sort of ideas or thought patterns or habits of thoughts. Now, over the next couple of weeks and maybe even months, we'll kind of go, we'll unpack those in more detail. But I think what the Buddha is getting after, and most of us recognize, is of those four things. Uh, we're, we, we live inside our minds. We're always thinking way too much about everything all the time. You know, that sort of, um, especially the modern world. I mean, if you think about it, like we're really screwed nowadays. I mean, how much stuff was there really to think about in ancient India? You know, there wasn't a lot going on. Uh, and so for us to kind of cultivate the practice in modernity, man, there is just like, a million things going on all the time, every moment, every second, 24 hour news cycle. It's kind of bonkers, actually. The fact that we, any of us would even try to sit still on a cushion for 20 minutes and try to pay attention to the breath and not our, expect ourselves to be bombarded with an array of fabulous and horrifying distractions. I mean, that's, I think we have to get ourselves, I think we all have to give ourselves a little bit of credit that we would even try to do something as seemingly foolish as paying attention to what's going on right now. I don't think we give ourselves much credit for that. So he's trying to say, uh, to be aware of the ground or the body is arising, feelings are arising, mental states are arising, our ideas are arising. And if you, if you just generally monitored those four things, uh, you'd be better off because those that's what's happening right now, rather than, you know, we monitor, we mostly live in the minds, and when we live in the mind, we're very much future oriented. Uh, what does Dave Smith have to do right now? What do I have to do later? What do I have to do tomorrow? What do I have to do next week? I have too many things to do, too many things to do right now, too many things to do tomorrow, too many things to do next week. How am I going to do all these things? Too many things, not enough time. Too many things, not enough time, right? And that's kind of like, I think most, if we're honest, most of that's most of what's front and center in our cognition. 
got to do this, got to do that, got to get it done, got it done fast, got to get it done now. And that that is so seductive and so hypnotic that I can do that and my body can sort of disappear. We're like walking around with like a head without a body. Um, and so mindfulness says, well, wait a minute, there's actually a lot more going on right now. Um, and so the primary shift that I just want to I want to point this out because it's, it's really mentioned. It's not mentioned in the Satipatthana, but it's huge within Buddhist thought is that the shift that the Buddha is really trying to get us to make is, um, is being preoccupied with a place. He's trying to get us to make a shift from, from place to ground, right? So what is place and what is ground and why should we make that shift? Um, Place could be a lot of things. Place could be uh, your job, your location, uh, a status. It's where would I like to be in the world? We're always, you know, a place to go, a vacation to go on, a job to have, a relationship to be in, a relationship to not be in. You know, we're very preoccupied with getting to like a destination. I need to get to such and such destination. And when I get to such and such destination, I'll be happy. And until I arrive at this destination or I get to this place, I'm going to, I'm going to be a, 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 square, a squirrel in a hamster cage running a thousand miles an hour. And so that's that futuring. So he's saying that we're preoccupied with a place, with a destination, something to have, something to get, something to be. The version of me that I'm not right now, but that I would like to be later. And all the strategies and all the things I have to do to acquire that. And of course, as we all know, even if you get to something that even mimics this destination, it's not really good enough and you got to get to another one. You see what I mean? So he's saying that we, we delight and we revel and we consume and we, we're preoccupied with this entire place that we don't see this ground. The other word that's used here for ground is tana, as in Satipatthana, but it's also the same word in Paticca Samuppada, the ground of dependent arising or dependent origination, which is sort of just kind of a way of like what's actually happening right now. Now, I um, just got done teaching a retreat. I just sat for seven days and was teaching a lot of this Mahasi Sayadaw methodology. And so another way to think about this, another way to think about this, and of course we have to, first of all, let me just say this entire Chasing the Place project is not bad or wrong. You should have some goals. You should have a destination that you would like to get to. There's nothing wrong with that. But if you look at it, if you use the analogy of like, um, there's a path that we're trying to follow and there's a view. So if I go for a hike, um, to climb to the top of a mountain, um, I need to be monitored. I need to keep my eye on the top of the mountain so I know I'm heading in the right direction. I need to maintain some view of, okay, this is where, this is where I think I'm going. But I also need to uh, maintain some view on my footsteps. And I don't want to just be lost in my footsteps because then I'll actually get lost. I wind up where I'm going. So I have to monitor the steps. I have to monitor my life one moment at a time. 
And even if I'm writing an email, I have to monitor one letter at a time. I do have to pay attention to life as it unfolds in real time. And I also have to pay attention to where I think this is going. And I have to be able to modulate back, back and forth. Does that make sense? And that's what makes the whole damn thing so hard because we oftentimes aren't mindful of that dynamic uh, and we're either totally myopic and too controlling and too caught up in what's going on right now that we don't have any sense where this is headed or where this might be headed or we're totally way too about gotta get there gotta get there and we're tripping over our feet we're falling down we're not we're not taking care of business we're too anxious we're too fearful we're like i gotta get there i gotta get there i gotta have it i need it i gotta get it so mindfulness gives us the ability to monitor both path and view mindfulness gives me the ability to, to say like okay well dave what do you got to do like today there's a bunch of shit that needs to get done today why don't we just start with that and of course the theory is, is if i have some sense of where this is all headed and i have some sense of what's happening now and i can kind of monitor those i can relax because at least I know I'm on the right path. So the path is complicated. The path is about the footsteps that I'm walking moment by moment. And it's also about like, I better have some idea where I think this is leading. And the steps I'm taking now in the present moment, are those supportive of where I think this might be leading? Or are they detrimental to where I think this might be leading? And again, that's that kind of moment by moment, you know, basically the most basic definition of the path is to cultivate what is wholesome and to abandon what is unwholesome. And so we're also having to be mindful of that. Like, is, is what I'm doing now leading me in a direction of happiness? Or is what am I doing right now leading me in a direction of suffering? Right? So that's, I hope that makes sense. That's kind of the lay of the land here. And so mindfulness is kind of our ability to monitor, to be, to be metacognitive enough to be able to monitor that whole project in real time. Like, okay, this is what I'm doing. I think this is where it's going. I think I'm kind of mostly headed in the right way. Don't think about that, that, you know, thinking about how you're going to pay the mortgage next summer is not helpful right now. Let that go. Uh, focus on this. And it's kind of a really dynamic mode. Really what I think it is, it's a mode of cognition that allows me to uh, feel good enough about how I'm living, allows me to say, no, this is, this is worthwhile. What I'm doing right now is worthwhile. And also to just add insult to injury, there's no guarantee. So because of impermanence, where I think I'm heading is probably going to change from time to time. So I have to be able to, so mindfulness also, we talked about this in the Abhidharma, as much as we're doing everything I'm saying, mindfulness can also adapt to changes as they come 
So like the definition of adaptability is, can I um, stay focused on my goals? Can I be focused on the goal, on where I, where I think this is heading? And can I easily adjust how I'm gonna get there? So, and that comes right out of Daniel Goleman's work on emotional intelligence, his emotional intelligence, competency of adaptability. Adaptability is, is essentially defined as being able to focus on our goals, but being able to easily adjust how we get there. And so the easiest way to do that is mindfulness. You're like, okay, well, I was doing this and this is, this is looking like this isn't gonna work, I need to adjust. And so the thing about that that makes it so hard is that on a day-to-day -day basis, how well do we all manage setbacks? How many setbacks do you have every day? I have at least two or three scheduled tomorrow, I'm sure of it. You know, you're heading in a direction. You're assuming that things are gonna go a certain way. You're putting energy into that. You're putting effort into that. And then all of a sudden, by some random event of the universe, oh, it turns out that's actually not gonna happen. And so what, what happens in that, if, if I get too upset in the, oh shit, I don't think that's gonna happen. If I get too upset, um, then what happens is I kind of lose the mindfulness and I suffer, that's where I kind of suffer. Oh, this thing didn't happen. You know what, fucking things never work. Nothing ever works out for me anyway. Why do I even bother? Why do I even try doing everything? It's all just one big disappointment after another. Right, so I, what happens is I, I kind of get blocked in that moment and I, I'm not able to adapt. I'm not able to see what could be done right now. I'm not able, all the things I've kind of mentioned, they kind of go away. And then all I do is usually what happens to me is I usually fall into some kind of underlying narrative about Dave Smith being this person who all he does is have to deal with setbacks and how other people never do what they say they're gonna do. Uh, and, and people, generally speaking, are just a big disappointment anyway. And what's really going on, what's really going on is in this particular moment, something that I assumed or planned or uh, anticipated would happen isn't going to happen. That's all that's really happening is this this one little item. This person's not showing up for this meeting, okay, or this 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 job, this retreat, this class isn't actually going to happen, and therefore the money associated with that is also not going to happen. Right. But instead of just working with that, I fall or I slip into like, see, told you, why would you get excited about anything? And then I get kind of, I forget about all the things I just mentioned earlier. And that goes on for however long that goes on for. And then I wake up or I snap out of it or I, or I basically what happens is I kind of work through it in some way, which usually for me takes about 24 hours. Um, and then I get back on the path again and I go, okay, well, I think I'm heading this way. I think this is the way to go. Um, let's, let's get, let's get back. I mean, let's be honest, right? You have to keep going anyway. You get up every day and you fucking do it anyway, don't you? You know what I mean? You're going to do it anyway. You think you're not going to do it. You got to start with like, you know what? You're going to go to bed tonight. You're going to wake up tomorrow. And you're going to be fucking back at it again. So how do you want to go about it? You know what I mean? 
you know, it's like we, we, you know, we're resilient, man. We do like, you know, we, 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 we keep you, you have no choice. What are you going to do? You know what I mean? You can't sit in your closet and cry for eternity. You know, eventually, eventually you shake off the dust and you get up and you're all right, here we go. Let's, let's get, let's get back to it. Let's, let's, let's get back to the next ass whooping that I'm going to get here, which is probably scheduled immediately. Right. So, so we really want to have mindfulness in its fullest form is our ability to, to kind of move through our world, through our experience with some capacity of like, okay, like I know where I'm headed. I think this is how I'm going to get there. And I'm going to fucking trip and fall a hundred times or someone's going to pull out the rug out from underneath me. You know, I'm going to make plans and they're not all going to happen. I'm going to anticipate sources of income and they're not always going to come through. You know, I have this job, but maybe this job will end. You know, we, we assume that everything that we have lined up is going to keep trucking on and on and on. And so we're not mindful of impermanence. We're not mindful of change. All right. So we want to, so this is all in the ground. So if I'm not in the ground a little bit and I'm just preoccupied with that destination full steam ahead, any little hiccup along the way is going to throw me off every time. Right? This is why, again, we, we have to, that, that's probably good we did the Abhidharma stuff before we do the Satipatthana because we've already outlined there's 26 things going on here. You know, mindfulness is not a, it's not a one thing thing. It's, it's, it's such a huge way of being and you know you all have whether you realize it or not you all have way more of it than you think that you do because what you can't remember you can't remember what it was like not having it like if we could do a little experiment and i could take sonia or ann or or dory and plug you back into your mind and you had to go back into the mind that you were in 15 years ago you know what you'd say? You'd say, get me fucking out of here. Yeah, you know, like, give me my new mind back. Like, you don't know how good you got it now because you just, the mind can't remember how bad it once was. Does that make sense? Like, shit, maybe I could plug you into your mind like 18 months ago and you'd be like, okay, okay. Give me my, so mindfulness is, if we really want to apply it towards science, which is probably a good move, mindfulness is a feature of evolution, right? So we do evolve as a species. We know that. That's not, I don't think anybody here is going to argue with that. And so if we have a brain that can perform different tasks, then even in my lifetime, I'm growing old, but I'm also evolving. And what can evolve is my my consciousness, uh, my mental apparatus, my ability to navigate the world skillfully. Uh, it improves over time because we are developing, we're cultivating this capacity of mindfulness. So, you know, it's not it's not like either you're mindful or you're not it's not like mindfulness is like this it's like it's it's essentially undefinable because because you're encouraging it and because you're valuing it and because you're trying to utilize it in some way 
it is growing and it is developing and it is becoming more dynamic, more useful. So um, the, the bad news here, and maybe the irritating thing is you just don't, I can't give you a measuring stick. There's no measuring stick that I can give you that you can measure. Yeah, okay, I got 9.6 mindfulness. It's like, there's not, there's not that, right? And also we have to be very clear, and this is just totally, it's super counterintuitive. More mindfulness doesn't mean more pleasure or more, doesn't mean more easier life for you, right? And so the general measuring stick we have is that if I feel good, if I'm happy, then mindfulness is working. And if I'm unhappy, it's not. You know, that you should, if you could, if there's any measuring stick you could chuck in the dumpster, it would be the feeling one. I don't like how I feel. I'm feeling sad. I'm feeling confused. I'm feeling defeated yet once again. Um, that just means that's what's happening right now. And mindfulness is the one that mindfulness is a, is a feature of experience. It's giving you that data. So again, mindfulness doesn't really guarantee anything. The, the, the way to think about it probably most accurately um, is mindfulness is kind of like a mirror. And that's why I like the word reflection. Stephen Batchelor uses the word reflection almost always when he speaks of meditation. And I think that's a good word, we're reflecting. And what a mirror does is if you have a, a, a clear mirror, any object that goes in front of that mirror gets reflected totally. The mirror doesn't, doesn't pick and choose what objects it reflects accurately and which ones it doesn't reflect accurately. The mirror just says, this is what it is, you know? That is dog poop on the floor, that is that, that it's just, it is, I hate the statement, but it is what it is. And so what we want is we want our mindfulness to be as clear as possible and as ability to reflect back to us. But most of us, if we're honest, we have one of those like, those carnival mirrors, you know, those carnival mirrors are all twisted up and, you know, that's, you know, that's kind of what we really got. So, uh, and so what we do is when we, when we, when we like what we see, when we like what's in the reflection, we project qualities onto it that aren't there because we want to have it. It will be so nice when I have it. Uh, and if we don't like what the mind is reflecting back, we omit qualities are, that are on it because we don't want to see them. And that, that's actually cognitive science 101 your mind does that all by yourself like that's not your fault you can't really do much about that you know if you you know you project and you omit that's kind of perceptual theory 101 the mind is always projecting and omitting saying i think i like that so it's exaggerating what we like and it's kind of minimizing or being in denial about what we don't like so with mindfulness, we want to we want to try to break these kind of bad, uh, you know, psychological habits that are innate and that are just kind of biological. They just kind of came with the system. You know, like you think about it, like a thousand years ago, you know, if you if you saw like a, 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 something in nature that was edible, that was food that would sustain you, of course, you would want to project qualities on that. You say, oh, yeah, that's good. Let's get that one. We need that one. Uh, and, and we would do the same with, with things that didn't. So a lot of it has to do with survival.
but you know how much have we evolved in the last 200 years probably not that much how much has the world changed in the last 200 years oh my god how much has the world changed in the last five so we you know and, and robert wright says this in his book why buddhism is true i know i talk about that book a lot i think it's so good there's no way we're going to keep up like we are we have been lapped 5000 times by the industrial revolution <laughs> right totally you know that we actually honestly truly believe that if we got what we wanted we would be happy you know and so part of what we want to try to do is like to really try to slow things down, to be in the to be in the ground of our experience more, to be more in our bodies, more in our feelings, more in our emotions. Right now it's like this, right now it's like this. And to some degree, we want to question the data that the mind gives us. That kind of the mind in this way a lot of times is kind of like a destructive, bottomless social media news feed. The mind is just you ever notice it's just like a running teleprompter? that's telling you this is what's happening right now, this is what's happening right now, this is what's happening right now, this is how well you're not handling it, how come you're not handling it so well, you should be able to handle this better, what's the matter with you, right? We want to really try to stay away from being hypnotized so constantly by what it is that arises in the mind stream. And that's why we have these heart qualities, we have, you know, all these dharmic kindness and compassion and gratitude, all these heart-based qualities that help us stay more connected to experience so we don't project into our greatest fears and our biggest angers and don't become flooded and overwhelmed by destructive emotions. So I'm gonna pause right there because I'll go on and on. And I've already had one iced coffee relatively recently. But I hope that's helpful because I, I really, the tendency, I think, is people want to simplify mindfulness, but I'm not interested in simplifying. I want to make it as complicated as possible because that's actually, it is complicated. So one of the things that I try to do, one of the things that Buddhist teachers or Dharma teachers generally do is they try to take a, um, how do I say this? They try to take a complex idea and simplify it. Here's a very, very complicated idea, and let's simplify it. I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in let's take a very simple idea and make it as complicated as possible. Which I know is probably like, you're like, what? But that's actually probably more likely what's happening. You know, I'm not definitely not a reductionist. Like, I think there's an idea there. And of course, it's nice. It's, it's a polite thing to want to do as a teacher. Let's take this really, really complicated thing and try to get it as simple as possible. I don't think it can be done. So let's just take a simple concept, concept like mindfulness instead of trying to give it a one word sentence. Let's just realize that that's actually impossible. So we can get a better system view. Um, I don't know about you, but I, I, I find that mostly my life's experience is a big, complicated mess most of the time. And instead of trying to simplify the complicated mess, I try to just have acceptance. 
like, okay, this is actually what's happening. And uh, I'm trying to use the, the, whatever resources I have to help me feel okay, confident, faithful, good enough right now. Uh, and as much as that has been an excruciating process, I find in the long run, it's definitely been, been the better move for me. Uh, so we started last week. Um, we kind of we spent six months looking at the Buddhist Abhidharma, which was uh, fun. Um, and so now we're going to begin the um, exploration of of the teachings of mindfulness, uh, the four foundations of mindfulness, which are um, in a body of work called the Satipatthana Sutta, which is one of the suttas in the Buddhist canon, uh, in which there's many many suttas in the Buddhist canon. Probably at this stage of the game, uh, where we are in the popularity of mindfulness, it's probably the most famous, uh, most famous and most referred to uh, teaching in the entire Buddhist canon. So a sutta just means a Buddhist teaching. So if you look in the in this huge, it, it, the Pali canon is like maybe six or seven thousand pages. It's a total nightmare, and there's all these teachings in it that are not organized in any way, shape, or form. And one of them is called the Satipatthana Sutta, which is what the teachings of mindfulness where they appear. And, and, and it's probably safe to say it. I, I would certainly argue that any mindfulness instruction you've ever received through an app or through an MBSR or secular mindfulness or any Dharma or insight mindfulness, almost every instruction or every uh, kind of suggestion that we make is found somewhere within this text. So it's kind of the revered um, text for developing the mind, for mind development of mindfulness. Um, Satipatthana, Satipatthana just is a Pali word that just means, Sati means to remember, to recognize. Uh, Tana means a ground or a foundation. So remember to recognize that there's a ground or a foundation. So what does that mean and how can that actually be helpful? So. Uh, so I'm going to talk about the, I'm going to just do a kind of a nice overview tonight on the four foundations of mindfulness, and then we'll kind of go through them one at a time exhaustively, um, as, as is my style. Um, so uh, just to kind of, why, why does the Buddha use mindfulness? Why is it so important? Why is it uh, uh, the primary feature of his entire teachings? So really everything that we talk about in the Dharma, every list, every teaching, every idea, uh, the, the, the playing field of the entire game happens on the playing field of mindfulness. So mindfulness is actually super important and it's really the whole beginning of uh, this kind of endeavor of understanding the mind. Um, and so the shift that the Buddha is trying to get us to make, and, and, and this is where I'll talk about this problematic word, I'm sure you've all heard that this idea that mindfulness or meditation is kind of about living in the present moment, right? You've probably heard this exhaustively. I, and I think this is actually kind of a problem, this whole present moment. And this, this Eckhart Tolle guy, I don't know where the hell he came from, but his whole power of now stuff, I think is just kind of like useless. Um, he's got no training. He's not a meditation teacher. He's just kind of this guy who wrote a book. I'm like, it's good to be in the present moment. Like, like we didn't fucking know that already. Um, so really from a Buddhist perspective, there is no present moment. There's no word, there's no idea, there's no 
there's no the Buddha's never really talking about something about being in the present moment or now. He doesn't use those ideas at all. Um, he's more interested. Uh, ultimately, he's interested in in how things come to be, how things arise, how things come to be in the mind body experience and how we can relate to those things in a constructive way. So ultimately, he's really concerned with how you can live your life and how you can live your life in a way that's more meaningful, more embodied. And so with that, it would be safe to assume that being present for your life as it actually happens in real time is probably a good idea, right? So this whole present moment thing is certainly applies. But if you ever try to have you ever tried to find, has anybody yet, I've never found it in 30 years, has anybody found this present moment? I have never seen it. And I've looked. It's moving. You know, the whole thing is moving, and a lot of times it's moving really fast. So we're just trying to um, to get into a ground. So what does he mean by ground and why is that important? Well. The whole Satipatthana is to remember to recognize the ground of experience, which is arising in this present time experience. But the shift that he's trying to get us to make, and this isn't in the Satipatthana, which is problematic. So the, the other thing that's problematic is when you take all of these fabulous Dharma teachings and you cherry pick one thing out, you take mindfulness and you pull it out of the entire system and you bring it over here and you look at it all by itself, it doesn't always make sense and it doesn't always work because you've pulled it out of an elaborate system in which it's integrated into other things. Does that make sense? Like, you know, you, if, you, if you take your carburetor out of your car and you know, if your, your carburetor is useless and now your car is useless without the carburetor actually. So when you start taking things out and just using the things by themselves, you're going to find that you're going to be um, create a lot of unnecessary confusion. And so the what, what the Buddha is really trying to get us to do and why mindfulness is so important, he says that what what troubles people, what our primary problem is, is that we're so preoccupied with a place that we don't recognize the ground that we're in. So he's trying to get us to make a, a psychological uh, existential shift in a place, being preoccupied with getting to a place or a destination to actually be living into a ground. So what does that mean? So what is a place? Well, a place could be a physical location. It could be a job. It could be a relationship. It, it's basically places always kind of oriented with a future where the, I'm not here now, but I'm trying to get there. And it's a preoccupation with where I'm going or where this is heading or what I'm trying to get. And the more preoccupied I get with the future, the more I preoccupied I get with a place, a better place to be, a better world to have, a better relationship, a better job, a better whatever, the present time experience in my life as it's happening now just gets more and more and more and more lacking. And so one one of the outcomes of this, and this is, this is totally rampant in our culture, and you've probably seen it, is this creates, this whole preoccupation with the place creates what's called a pathology of lack. So a lot of us feel plagued and pathologized by a strong feeling of lacking. You ever feel like you're lacking? 
my life is lacking. I don't have this. I don't have that. And I wish I had this. And I wish I had that. And I wish this would happen. And I wish that wouldn't happen. I wish I could be here, but I'm not. And so this, so what he's saying is we're, we're a lot of times in a very simple way, we're, ima- we're oftentimes imagining a life that we could be living that would be preferable and better than the life that we're actually having and experiencing. And so, you know, that sucks because you can never really get or have that imagined life. And how, let's be honest, how hard is it to imagine? How long does it take you to imagine a life that would be better than the one that you're having? I just did it. It's not that hard. You know, and, and, and we all get real fucking good at it. And if there's one thing you don't want to get good at is you do not want to get good at that. But that's what we find ourselves in. So the Buddha is trying to say, okay, like, don't, don't do that. Don't, don't live in this futural, imagined experience, better, more important, more meaningful than the one that you're actually in, because your whole life will pass you by and you won't ever experience it. So he's saying life actually happens one moment at a time, moment by moment. So the foundations of mindfulness, the ground of the mind is about being in clocking and monitoring these four domains of our experience. And and the first one, and probably no surprise, is the body. You live inside of your body. Your body is ground zero. Your body is the vehicle in which you navigate the world in. And if we we really think about it, and and I'll admit to it, like most of us, we, we think we don't like ourselves. Like, that's our, our problem. We don't like ourselves. But a lot of us just don't like our bodies. I don't like the age of my body. I don't like the size of my body. I don't like the shape of my body. I don't like all kinds of shit about my body. The sexuality of my body, the lack of the sexuality of my body, the over-sexuality of my body, the body, the body, the body, the body. Fucking body's slowing me down. And if you think about it, how many hours of your day i mean at least a third of your day is about taking care of the body first you're supposed to sleep for fucking eight hours so that's out there's eight hours just gone for the body you got to take a shower you know you got to eat i mean half of your day is just dealing with the demands of the physical body you know you're like i can't get nothing done i have this fucking body slowing me down keeping me from getting this body's too hot it's too hot in this body it's cold in this body this body's tired this body's this fucking body sucks <laughs> right but we have no idea maybe we do uh, but, but we don't realize that it's like that's really that's a huge problem right there is this kind of so he's trying to say so that so the whole first foundation of mindfulness teachings we'll go through one at a time eventually is about embodied awareness so the body the buddha thing you need to be more embodied which includes not just the body body but the five physical senses are part of the body you know smelling can you smell tomorrow no can you taste yesterday no can you hear two weeks ago no the body and its sensing experiences, this is where the now comes in. They're, 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 they're happening uh, in real time. The body and the five senses happen in real time. And so it's probably a good idea to spend more time and more attention and more awareness 
sensory clarity. Uh, the great Shinzen Young uh, talks about this, the Shinzen Young meditation master, like to be really have more sens sensory clarity. Now we've been doing, my wife Shannon has been doing all this work on nature-based stuff. And there's actually, a, and I just did a no, nature retreat with Mark Coleman. I mentioned that. There's all this boatload of research now, like, like one of the one of the, one of the healthiest things you can do, one of the best things for your entire system is to go sit in nature for a couple hours. Like the natural world is so good for us because first of all, all the distractions are removed and you're just you're just fully mindful and in touch with your sensory experience. You know, the sound of the nature, the birds, the crickets, the leaves, all that stuff. The smell of nature is usually pretty good. You know, the whole thing is actually quite nice. And it's just so good for us to be in that experience. Now, you know, go walk and go walk in nature for two hours and then come back and walk, walk around Walmart for two hours and then ask yourself, which one do you prefer? All right, hopefully not the Walmart. My four-year-old son would rather walk around Walmart, but that's his problem. You know, he's, <laughs> you know he's a little craving machine. Um, and so this is really where the Buddhist, so much of our mind development, if we go on retreats, if we sit every day, I mean, right, what's the first instruction? The literally the first instruction in the Satipatthana is breathe in and know that you're breathing in. When was the last time you actually breathed in and with mindfulness said to myself, I'm breathing in right now? That doesn't happen that often. Breathing out, I know that I'm breathing out right now. Hearing sounds, being in the sensory experience, even like, a lot of people, even when we eat food, we're not necessarily that present. We're looking at a phone or we're watching TV. You know, sometimes it's like I eat I eat so hurriedly and rush. Someone asked me, what did you have for lunch? I'm like, I don't even fucking remember what I had for lunch. And it was two hours ago. I don't even know if I ate lunch, actually. Right? Because we, 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 we go mindless. We go into distraction. We go into imagination. We go into kind of alternative reality mode. And we just kind of don't pay attention to what's happening, you know. We and that's generally that that's really what the Buddha's kind of getting. At. It's like when you're not paying attention to happen to what's happening, what you're paying attention to is what else could be happening or should be happening, if only. And you know, you kind of become hypnotized into that, and so that there's, there's a lot of suffering there, and there's a lot of lack there. There's all kinds of stuff there. Uh, that's very unsatisfying. It might feel good whilst you're doing it at times, but for the most part, we find that entire endeavor to be totally, um, you know, unsatisfying. So back to the body, back to the breath. And then he, then he even goes further. He says, well, that's, that's, that's the first foundation of mindfulness. The second foundation of mindfulness is what's called Vedana or feeling tone. And this is really where we get in trouble. He's trying to be modern. How do I feel right now? Like in terms of just just the, the pleasure-pain dichotomy. Like, you know, uh, usually feeling tone is taught in three ways, which I would re reject. I think it's a Western invention. Most of you have heard of it. There's pleasure, there's pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. So you kind of get these three categories, which I think is... Um, it's definitely not in the Satipatthana. It's more of, of, the, of a feature of insight meditation in the last 50 years. It's 
the Buddha's not talking about this, these three options of either I like it, I don't like it, or I don't care, but there's pleasure and there's pain on a broad spectrum, on a wide spectrum, and then there's everything in the middle. And so the middle we could say is neutral, but it's more like indifferent and there's, it's more kind of, of, of a range of experience. And, and the theory, of course, and this is not that hard of a theory to grasp, is if, if, I, if I find the present moment experience to be unpleasant, then I wish for it to be gone. Uh, and if I find it to be pleasant or enjoyable, I wish for it to continue. And if I find it to be neither of those things, I usually just kind of space out and doom scroll and eat sugar and carbs and just kind of like whatever. I don't, I'm not really engaged. I kind of just in this foggy, indifferent, maybe I'm bored, I'm apathetic, I'm cynical, I just sort of don't care. I, maybe I even get into despair. Life's just kind of this boring, mundane thing that I just, you ever feel like life is this thing that you just need to get through? Like, oh man, when I get through this life thing, I can just die and be done with it. It's like, really? That's the best you can do? And sometimes, honestly, that's the best I can do. So he's trying to get us to be aware of the general feeling hedonic tone that can be talked about. Uh, in a clinical sense, we would probably use this word, and I think this is a good word, affect. So, so as we, when we touch the experience through our sensing experience, this word pasa means contact. We make contact with life moment by moment, and we touch things, and then we get touched back. Just like you touch a hot stove, the hot stove touches you back. Life, the world, consciousness isn't like this thing in the back of the head. We're constantly touching experience and we're being touched by experience. And the touch being touched by experience is we're being touched in ways that are painful or pleasant or neither or anywhere in that entire spectrum. And the Buddha saying, well, you need to be you need to be generally kind of aware of of this feeling tonality because it will it will it will be a predictor for many things. In many ways, primarily, it will be a predictor for behavior. So if I don't like it, I'll push it away. If I like it, I'll grab at it. Uh, and this this has all been really well defined and outlined in cognitive science research and uh, evolutionary psychology. Uh, Robert Wright's book, Why Buddhism is True, does an unbelievable job in the first couple of chapters of really teasing this out. Like, you can't help this. This is not your fault. This is built-in shit. You know what I mean? So the Buddha's like, yeah, this is built-in. You better keep an eye on it or it, will, or it will go into autopilot. Now, that's what autopilot is. Autopilot is and we've just surrendered mindfulness, we've surrendered any sense of agency or authority, and we just think the goal of life is to get what I want and, and avoid what I don't want. And then we select the auto button pilot and we just we just hastily, like a bull in a china closet, run through the world trying to get what we want, avoiding what we don't want, finding that we can't actually pull it off. And if we do, we're not fucking happy anyway. You know? So again, back to the place. I got to get to the good place. I got to get to the pleasant place and get rid of this unpleasant place. So he's saying, so these first two, uh, the body and the feeling tones are there. We inherit those. They're part of our biological evolutionary legacy. There's really not much you can do. Like when you bite into a bite of food, 
you don't sit there and think, is this pleasant? Do I like this? Do I not like this? I'm not really sure. You just know immediately. Veda and feeling tone is immediate. And you really don't have a lot of agency over whether you like things or don't like things. You like what you like and you don't like what you don't like. And that just seems to be how it is, right? So uh, we want to we say we want to embrace these. We want to recognize these. We want to understand that this is built in and we don't want to let this feeling tone uh, uh, kind of instinct, reaction, habituation, impulse drive everything that we do. Now, the problem with is, is the feeling tone is happy to drive everything for you. The feeling tone will say, fucking get out of the way. I got this. And anybody on the screen with addiction, which is more than, I know I'm not the only one here, knows what this is like. When you just put the autopilot selector on pleasure pain, that's kind of what addiction is, you know, you know what I mean? And you'll do anything get in, you know, to, to, to try to get that to work for you. And most of you have probably recognized that that is a very futile endeavor. And then, so then the third foundation of mindfulness, so they get a little more complicated as we go. So the body's sensing not too complicated, feeling tone, a little more complicated, not too complicated. But then we get into mindfulness of mind or a mindfulness of chitta, which is really starting to be more aware of our mental states or our mental attitudes, our dispositions, our perceptions, these kinds of things, um, which is really where the liberation happens. This is, this is where your agency begins. It's not in the body, it's not in the feelings, it's in the mind, it's in the chitta. This is where you can change your relationship. You can, you can stop hating unpleasantness. You can notice, oh, gee, when, when it's unpleasant, I hate it and I'm afraid of it. And we can say, okay, well, like, can I work with that? That's what mindfulness. Can I, can I change the relationship to that? Can I bring in some kindness or some acceptance? Or can I bring something else in here to mitigate this? So I'm not driven by like, you know, it would be something like state of mind. Mood would fit in here. Mood, the word mood doesn't fit in the Buddhist context so well, but this is where it would fit. We all know this word mood. And, and this really, um, these mind states that we get into uh, are really, really important. And without, without mindfulness, you're never going to be able to detect them. Like just as the Buddha says in the Satipatthana, he says, when, when, when the meditator has anger in their mind, they know I have anger in my mind right now. When the meditator knows I have greed in my mind right now, it's in my mind. Anger is in my mind. Resentment is in my mind. Grumpiness is in my mind. Irritation is in my mind right now. Now, if I don't know that, then what happens is if I can't detect the inner landscape of my mind state, then I take that mind state and I project it onto reality. So if I'm irritated, and I don't know that I'm irritated and I don't have any mind training, I project that irritation on the world and then I look around for what is the source of my irritation and then I try to fix it, try to change it, try to avoid it, try to control it, try to blame it. Go, I, I feel this, you made me feel this way. And what we do is we, we, we blame the world, people, circumstances for how we feel. You've probably seen people do this kind of what people do 
And and so that's just completely blind, sandbagged, no self-awareness, no interest or no ability to take any responsibility for our mind states, for our attitudes, for our dispositions. And so, and this is where mindfulness becomes amazing. And you've probably all seen this. You can get caught up in this stuff. You can recognize it and you can overcome it. I mean, if you have a quote unquote bad attitude and know that you have a bad attitude, it's not that hard to change your attitude, is it? It's like, you can, these attitudes, mind states, these attitudes of minds, this is what when the Buddha or, or when the neuroscientists talk about neuroplastic, this is what they're talking about, the way that I'm perceiving experience. So I'm, maybe I'm in a lot of pain, I'm in a lot of unpleasantness. That's going to put anger and irritation in the mind, and I can, I can, I can overcome that in a moment of experience. This is like totally profound. This is really where the, um, this is kind of, in, in classic Buddhist liberation, this is what gets liberated is the mind state, not the body, not the feelings. So you can liberate your mind, you can be fully liberated in your mind and still have unpleasantness in your emotions and in your body and pain in your body. It doesn't mean that things are pleasant or easy, it just means that you've changed your relationship to them psychologically on some level. Uh, and so again, these words, none of these words quite work, what I'm saying. It's mood, it's attitude, it's mind state, it's, you know, it's these kinds of things, perceptions. Um, but you notice you can, you can be aware of these things, you know, it's totally doable. Um, and then the fourth foundation of mindfulness gets even more complicated. This is really... Um, where we're not just aware of the body, the feelings, and the mind states, but we're aware of what kind of uh, ideas, what kinds of thoughts, what kinds of mental, psychological habits are arising in that mind state. And so one of the things that's good to know is that if I'm grumpy uh, and I'm in a grumpy mood, there are certain kinds of thought habits that happen only in that mood. Like there's things that happen in my mind when I'm grumpy that don't happen in my mind when I'm well rested and happy. It's a whole different thing. So I like this word mind field, right? Mind field, right? Like, so in the field of the mind, uh, based on the attitude, the general state of the mind, certain kinds of thinking is going to arise. So if my mind is irritated, uh, I'm going to be looking for the source of the irritation. I'm going to be kind of blaming. I'm going to be kind of defensive. And so we can sometimes just notice, and this is where the teachings like, just to give you one set, because it's quite a few, this is where the hindrances show up. So the Buddha says, he says, well, notice when you're craving, notice when you're in aversion, notice when you're in restlessness or anxiety, when you're in dullness or when you're in doubt. Notice when these these kind of, we could call them, I would probably say what they are is their behaviors. So it's really important, I think, really helpful to, um, to kind of acknowledge that thinking, there's thinking behaviors. What, what is behavioral thought? So planning is a behavior, planning, judging, criticizing, blaming. You know, these are all behaviors that the mind engages in. And so what we want to do is we want to recognize the destructive kinds of thinking that we engage in and overcome that. 
right? And we want to recognize the constructive or the wholesome kinds of thinking that we develop and cultivate that. So you see how each one gets a little bit more complicated, but really the sweet spot is is really trying to to have a general awareness as a, as a kind of something that you carry around with you is a general awareness and a general ability to kind of be monitoring or, or aware of or mindful of the general attitude, the disposition, the, the perception of, of the mind and noticing that without awareness of that, you're gonna be dictated by that. That's going to drive behavior. It's going to drive thought, uh, and you can and you don't you can that can go on without your awareness or uh, really your permission. Have you noticed your mind does not need permission from you to do anything at all? Really, my mind never checks in. He says, "Dave, I got a really bad idea. I'm going to do some real stupid shit right now. I just would like you to co-sign this for me." It never fucking checks in. It just does stupid shit. And then blames me later for the stupid shit it does. You ever do something really stupid and your mind goes to you? I wouldn't have fucking done that if I was you. And I'm like, asshole, you fucking, it was your idea. Right? As Joseph Goldstein loves to say, the mind has no pride. No pride. It's fickle. It's childlike. It's like, well, I mean, I mean. You probably shouldn't have done that. I don't know what you were thinking. I mean, how many times are you going to do that? I mean, you said you weren't going to do that anymore. You just did it again. You must be stupid, not paying attention. It's like, wait a minute. Like, who's who's talking in here? You know, it's like the, the, the mind, there's one microphone and like a thousand voices fighting over like the microphone. You know, it's like, you want to be mindfulness is just watching who gets on the mic. It's like, don't fucking let that guy on the mic guy's got to go and so the buddha actually talks about mindfulness as the guardian it it it, it watches it's the gatekeeper it watches what comes in and, and says you know no don't let that in don't be careful what comes in because the, what happens is when when these destructive forces come into the mind uh the mind gets we get what happens is the mind gets corrupted by these forces, ultimately, in a simple way, by greed, hatred, and confusion, it gets corrupted. And then once the mind becomes corrupted, then we we kind of go through that for a little while until we work through it. Thank God impermanence happens. You can't you can't be in a destructive mind state for too long. Uh, eventually, it eventually will have to kind of die on its own. And then you wake up and go, that was that was weird. That was a weird couple of hours right there. Yeah. It's like when you're, I do this sometimes. I do this. I have habits. It's the problem is we have, I have habits. I'll get up in the morning and I'll just do this. And I'll be like, why am I doing this? I just, there's nothing in here I want to see. And then I'll put it down and two minutes later, I'll pick it back up again. I'm like, I just put this down. I just, not much, in two minutes. I know a lot of stuff changes on the, online, but, you know, my YouTube feed's not going to be much different two minutes from now than it is right now. Is it really? Probably not. Or like in the last two minutes that I really think I got another important email in the last two minutes that I fucking need to check right now. And it's like, yeah, <laughs> I do. And I'm so disappointed when there isn't one. Or it's like a shitty one. It's like a one from like Tractor Supply or some bullshit place that got my email. 
So, you know, you got to have a sense of humor about this stuff. So uh, let's do a practice of this. They're really working with the third foundation of mindfulness. And now just because I've kind of drilled down on it a little bit. Um, I'll do some light instructions that you've done before. This kind of, you know, am I waiting for something to happen? Am I waiting for something to go away? And really trying to really focus on being grounded, being embodied in our experience and noticing when you kind of, you, you kind of uh, move beyond that and you get caught up in, well, where's the place I want to be? You know, whether it's a meeting tomorrow or something that you have to do next week. Um, you know, the mind is the great time traveler. I mean, that's what it does. It time travels, looking for a better time and a better place to be in. And it's never happy with this one. I mean, sometimes it is. Sometimes you get lucky and you're happy right now. But you got to work hard for that stuff. All right. Well, welcome to Dharma Live Online. Uh, we have started slowly uh, looking at the Satipatthana Sutta, which we'll look at for a long time now, which is really the teachings on mindfulness. Um, uh, so much can be said about mindfulness. It's kind of a big topic of conversation. In many ways, it's, in many ways, I think it's maybe the Buddha's greatest kind of contribution to, uh, to humanity. Uh, and also like, it's not like he invented it either, right? Like he didn't invent this thing called mindfulness, but he, he was able through his own efforts and his own, uh, trials and tribulations was able to recognize that there really was a, a way to relate to the inner experience. Um, so everything we do in Dharma practice, everything that we talk about, all the lists, all the philosophies, all the ideas, everything is really meant to be explored in the laboratory of mindfulness, the laboratory of your own direct experience, which is great because then we run into this word, ahipasako, which means come and see for yourself. So the Buddha is basically saying right out of the gate, which makes him very much not a religious figure, because what he's saying is sit down, observe your mind, observe your experience, and uh, and hear some suggestions. Uh, and if you find what I suggest, if you find some of the teachings that I provide to be beneficial and to be useful, then have at it, cultivate that. Uh, and if you find anything that I've said or have taught or said to be that you don't recognize or you don't find any value in it, don't worry about it. Now, that is the religion is usually not in the business of presenting ideas in that kind of way. You know, if you don't like some of this, don't worry about it, you know. So tonight we're going to look at um, the direct path. So mindfulness is taught as uh, ekimaga which means direct path one way. And this actually is, is controversial for me. What I'm about, what I'm going to talk about tonight, I'm actually not a huge fan of, and I'll tell you why. And so the way that the Satipatthana is organized is that there's the direct path, there's the definite, there's, this is what the path is, and then there's a definition of what it is, and then there's this refrain. I'll do the refrain next week. So the, it's a very highly organized, very highly structured text. There's no other text in the Pali Canon that's as structured as this one, which probably means it's been worked over and been developed over time. Um, so he says this, and a lot of suttas begin with, thus I have heard. So when, when the Buddha died and they wanted to memorize his teachings, one of his primary students, Ananda, 
would always start off with this one saying, thus I have heard, which basically means I was with the Buddha one time and this is what he said. Um, on the occasion, the Buddha was living in Karoo County at the town of Karoo's named in Kama, can't even say it, Kama Sadama. There he addressed the group of monks. And so he basically said he was with these guys and this is what he said. He said, monks, this is the direct path of liberation of all beings for the surmounting of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of dukkha and discontent, for acquiring the true method, for the realization of Nibbana, namely the four Satipatthanas. So I don't actually like this definition. Um, and I think it causes a lot of unintended consequences. For example, when I hear that this path, so basically what I hear is if I develop this path correctly, these are the things that are going to happen. Um, the surmounting of, of sorrow and lamentation. I don't use the word lamentation very much, but to me, sorrow uh, is a very much correlated to the emotion of sadness. I would correlate, am I not alone on that? Would you mostly correlate sorrow and sadness? So I hear, I read that and I go, okay, cool. If I do mindfulness correct, no more sadness. Fucking sign me up. Uh, for the disappearance of dukkha, when this is the Analyo version, so this is actually his translation. There's many translations. Uh, and I don't think dukkha is going away in discontent for acquiring the true method, uh, for the realization of Nibbana, namely the four Satipatthanas. So I think that we have to, um, again, and I'll take the Buddha's words to heart here. Uh, I, uh, actually take a great deal of issue with what is being said here. Um, because I've been at this for a long time and I still get sad. I still feel discontent. Um, I, you know, basically if I read this text and I stand it up against my own experience, either I, either I'm, put in the deaf position where I either need to reject the text on some level or I just have to realize that I fucking clearly have not gotten it right. Um, and so I, I think I'm going to go with the rejecting of the text a little bit here because I don't think it's really healthy or helpful for me to think that I have somehow done this incorrectly. And also the idea is, and this is where it gets very academically controversial is we don't know if this is actually what he said, and this text has been worked over to some great degree, and it's certainly in favor of a monastic life. So I'm, I'm just going to politely put that aside for now. I'm not going to dig into that too much. We can we can talk about this more if you like. So basically, the beginning of the Satipatthana starts off with a stanza that I take great, um, I have great conflict with. Uh, but then he goes on to define it, which is a little bit more easy. So he tells you what the path is. And then he defines it. He says, well, here's, here's really what I'm talking about. So he says, what are the four? What are these four Satipatthanas? In regards to the body, the practitioner abides in contemplating the body. Diligently, clear-knowing, and mindful. Free from discontent in regards to the world. So that's the first foundation of mindfulness, the body. Now here's the Buddha's repetition. In regard to feelings, the practitioner abides contemplating feelings, diligently, clear-knowing, and mindful, 
free from discontent in desires in regards to the world. In regards to mind, abiding, contemplating the mind, diligent, clear-knowing, and mindful, free from desire and discontent to the guard regards to the world. In regards to dhammas, he abides, of course it's he, which we could probably chuck that, classic fucking bullshit, uh, abides contemplating dhammas diligently, clear-knowing, and mindful, free from desire and discontent to regards to the world. So I want to, what I really want to do is I want to attack these four words that you probably heard me say quite a bit here. I'm going to write them down so I don't have to keep going back to the text. So we have the word contemplate, which is a good word. We have the word uh, diligent, which I take issue with. Uh, clear knowing, mindful, and free from desire and discontent. So let's just kind of like go through these a little bit. I, I like that, um, and I won't get through the polycorrelates because that gets annoying. I'm sorry if I do that too much. Um, contemplate. I, I like that Biko and Nalu uses the word cont- contemplation. I think the word contemplation is actually a much better word than meditation. I actually think we could do without this word meditation and we all be better off. So if you go to a college or a university and you study, um, you know, religion or Buddhism or Christianity, you, you're, you're studying what are called contemplative traditions in an academic sense. You're not really studying religion. And, and, and contemplation is rich within the world. But contemplate means to kind of, from a Buddhist perspective, is to repeatedly look at. When I'm contemplating something, it's not that I'm thinking about it. I'm contemplating it. I'm, I'm, I'm reviewing it. I'm, I'm looking at it over and over and over again. So I'm looking at the body, what's going on in the body, what's going on in the breath. We all know this is the first foundation of mindfulness, contemplation of the body. Uh, and in weeks ahead, I'll go through all the body contemplations, the 32 anatomical parts, the death of the body, the aging of the body. But I think a lot of us, if we probably are honest with ourselves, most of us don't have a fabulous relationship with our bodies. Does anybody have anything about your body you sort of don't like? I've got a pretty attractive list of shit around my body. I would like to be different. You know, the way the body looks, the size of the body, the age of the body, the sexuality of the body. I mean, a lot of us just like, if we really get honest, it's like, fucking hate this body. You know, and, and at the same time, without it, I wouldn't get anything done. The mind would be useless without the body. So... It's interesting. So this word contemplate is a good word. I think that's a better word than meditation. And I like that Biko now he chooses to use it. But then he uses this word diligent, um, which I don't like. I don't think it's actually a good, I think it's a poor translation on his part. Dare I, dare I criticize Biko now you? Um, uh, because diligent, the word diligent for me, I don't know about you, has a, what's baked into that word is a kind of striving, a diligent, like I think of like a diligent soldier or a diligent person as somebody who's like got a lot of striving and a lot of kind of almost even a bit of aggression. Um, the other word that would probably fit here actually better is care. Now, I find it to be more useful to contemplate with care than I do to contemplate with diligence. 
right? Care or even a bit, the, one of the other translations that's really quite accurate is enthusiasm. Contemplating the body with, with enthusiasm, with care. So there, so, so now we're talking about a quality of like how, how, so it's, so we're not just contemplating, but how are we contemplating? Is there a sense of care? A sense of enthusiasm, a, a kind of positivity, we would say. To me, diligence doesn't necessarily have a positive tonation to it. Uh, in fact, I would, I actually would, I hear the word for me, and that's just me. We all, we all experience language very personally, but for me, it's a bit negative. Um, but really to contemplate with care, uh, with, with enthusiasm, with willingness, with, with some degree of like interest, these kinds of words. Clear knowing. Now, this is an interesting word, Sampajano. I used to, until I actually, I actually drilled down with this one with my friend John Peacock, who's a poly scholar, about like what clear knowing feels like, um, kind of vague, right? What, what is clear knowing? If I was clearly knowing something, um, how would I know that I'm clearly knowing it as opposed to not clearly knowing it? Um, and so another way to talk about it would be direct knowing. Another way to talk about it, yeah, another way to talk about it that might be most useful is when we talk about the present moment, which, you know, is a word I'm not a huge fan of. That's what we're after. Direct knowing is to know experience directly in tune with it in the moment that you're making contact in the moment that it arises in the moment that the you know and he says breathe in know you're breathing in when i know i'm breathing in right now you can do it right now you're directly you have to directly know the in-breath as the in-breath you directly know it right now because it's right here so this clear knowing this direct knowing and i think direct knowing is actually better because we know our experience directly directly is here and now so what is the body like here and now what are the feelings like here and now and what it does is it really tries to get us to have a more embodied relationship with experience so i think when they use this word present moment which is a word i'm sure you've heard meditation people use and we're not going to get rid of it so i'm not even going to try um that's that's that part of satipatthana is that there's a way in which i can contemplate the body with care with attention and i can contemplate it directly so those those are really the def those are the defining terms is the buddhist giving us the definition of well here's how you do it uh kind of contemplation of the body with a bit of care discipline maybe we could even say uh clearly knowing directly knowing the body as it is the body is like this right now uh sound is like this right now i can hear my maybe you can hear my dog barking this freaking head off out there probably chasing after my poor chicken um and so that's what that that's all about and then then mindful that word mindful in there i think that's kind of a bit I don't, don't you, I don't know about you, but one of my pet peeves is when people define a word with the word. You ever look up a word in the dictionary and, and they just use the word to define the word? I feel like that's what they're doing here. So we'll just kind of move beyond that a little bit. Um, and then he says this, which I think is really interesting, which is free from desire and discontent in regards to the world. 
which I think is actually the most profound part of the mindfulness definition. So what does that actually mean? So what he's saying is when we practice mindfulness, he's asking us to put aside, okay, we could say we could say we're putting aside our desires and our discontents about the world, you know, the world that which is really out there. Now, I don't know about you, but when I sit down, I get visited by the world the whole freaking time. The world of the past, the world of the future, the world of politics, the world of society, of culture, of all this stuff. Um, and so he's trying to say, like, if you're actually going to do mindfulness practice, if you're going to do a contemplative practice, you're going to have to put that aside. You know, and so, so the, so the interesting thing is like, if, if we actually did this, right? Like, and we'll do it, uh, contemplating the body with carefulness, uh, direct experience as it arises with mindfulness, with awareness, let's just say, uh, and also putting aside free from the things I want. So desire and discontent is just what I want and what I don't want. So my desires about the world, I don't know about you, but I got a lot of desires about the world. There's lots of things I want from the world. There's lots of things I want for the world. You know, and so uh, this is a lot of this. This is a lot of psychological experiences tied up in the things I want or don't want from the world. Hold on a second. As I'm sitting here teaching my Dharma class on Wednesday night and fantasizing about shooting my dog from the window up here so he'll stop barking. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I wouldn't really do it, but talk about discontent in regards to the world. I wish the dog would shut the fuck up. There's some discontent in regards to the world, right? So th this is like, this is a big ask, dude. Like, you really want me to sit here? And, and, and first of all, even if I wanted to, I'm not even sure I can put aside my desires and discontents in regards to the world. So, you know, so really these definitions is like, uh, Goldstein talks about it in his book, but this is, I think, I think this is a bit interesting and a little bit annoying as you all are painfully aware. Mindfulness is like really popular. Um, but you don't have you, have you heard anybody? Talk about what I just talked about. Have you heard this teaching before? I mean, it's right front and center in the mindfulness teachings where he's defining you. Here's how kind of almost nuts and bolts, almost like here's what you do with your mind. If you're going to even try to do this whole mindfulness thing, contemplation with some care and attention, direct experience, awareness of what's going on in that context and then putting aside your desires and discontents for the regards to the world another way to say that would be uh would be actually pointing to the hindrances another way to say desires and discontents is craving and aversion you know this this kind of um way in which and then nobody to blame here. I, I'm certainly dictated, dictated by it, but my mind is largely conditioned. And to some degree, I still believe that the goal of life is for me to get the things that I want from the world and to avoid the things I don't want from the world. 
Like that's kind of when I wake up every day, that's kind of on my fucking schedule, whether I realize it or not. Like, what am I going to get today? And what am I going to avoid today? Did you have any getting and avoiding wishes today? So, you know, how do you do that? You know, what's go, what, what, what is he really getting at here? And I think what, he, what he's getting at, and I think the Buddha was a bit of an ironic person in that sense. I think what he's trying to say is that the reason why that might, so whether we can do it or not do it, let's just put that aside. Like whether we can perform that task, whether we have the technical capabilities of even doing that, like whatever. But what, what, if we did, as we can in moments, what would be the benefit? What would be the outcome of that? Well, if I, if I was able to perform that task, then I'm being introduced to an entirely world of my inner experience. Right. Which is, I think really when, when we talk about the Dharma in many, many ways, the Buddha is offering us a kind of exploration of the inner experience. And so, if I'm going to even be interested in that project, I'm going to have to be putting aside some of my desires and discontents in regards to the world and really seeing that, like, um, you know, this is an inside job. Happiness is an inside job. If you look even at happiness research, uh, the Greater Good Science Center has a bunch of good stuff on this. Um, you know, happiness is, is it's not about getting what you want from the world. And this is, this has been well documented in cognitive science. I mean, the, the research on this is astounding because there are people in our society and our culture. I'm sure you know some of them who have gotten everything you could ever want from the world. All the money, all the cars, all the this, all that, the neighborhoods, all the houses, all the bullshit that we see people get. Uh, and, and, and in, by and large, they're not really that happy. So. Even if you succeed at a seemingly impossible task, chances are it's not going to pay off. So maybe we need to kind of figure out, do we need to reject that entire project or what's going on there? And so it's not about getting what I want from the world, but it's the quality of experience that I bring to the world. What am I bringing to the world? You know, in my own humanness. Am I an easy person to be around? Am I a friendly person to be around? Am I kind? Am I considerate? Am I generous? Do people generally prefer to be in my presence? Or do people generally prefer that I kind of go away? And that's an all an inside job. And so, and a lot of it is a lot of people, and this makes me sad to say, they they do this put aside the desire discontent they actually look inside their experience and they don't like what they see some of you probably have seen this in your practice if you've been at practice for a while at some point probably sooner than later you're going to be introduced to features of yourself of your mind of your heart uh that you're going to be not thrilled about and so this is really where the work begins this is where the inner transformation begins. It's like, okay, I, I, I don't want to be dictated by this feeling, by this thought, by this narrative. And so that's really the Dharma project is this con contemplative way of working with our experience. So we apply what I just said towards the body. 
We apply that towards feelings. Because we look at the world, what do we want? Well, I want the pleasant feelings from the world, and I want to avoid the unpleasant feelings from the world. Good luck. Good luck. Tomorrow, see if you can totally commit yourself to just experiencing pleasant and avoiding pain. I don't think you'll be able to pull it off. And you'll probably make yourself crazy in the process. So we apply these definitions to the body, to the body experience, to the feeling tonality, the hedonic tone, noticing that we, that we desire pleasant feelings and we feel discontent around unpleasantness. That's not our fault. So again, these first two foundations of mindfulness, we have to be clear that Buddha is inviting us to be inside an experience of the body and the feeling and directly knowing them, largely waking up to the fact that you're pretty much powerless over those things. Tell your body to not get sick. Tell your body to die, to not die. Tell your body to die. You know, tell your body to die. It's not going to listen to you. Uh, tell your body to lose 20 pounds while you're sleeping tonight and wake up and be 20 pounds lighter. I do that every day. It hasn't worked yet. <laughs> you know, you know, tell your body to enjoy a, a taste that you don't like. You know, bite into a delicious piece of pizza and tell your feeling tone not to like it. So this, this is kind of our evolutionary inheritance. You inherited the body, the planet that we live on. I know you think you're, you were born by your mom and dad, which you were, but we, the planet, the planet Earth actually made us, which is fucking trippy if you think about it. If you believe in science, of course. Um, and, uh, and so we, we inherited this. We have a body. We have a sensing body. That's what we call it. A sentient beings. Sometimes people used to say this word. They use this word sentient being in Buddhism, which I always thought was a dumb word until I realized it just means sensing. We have senses, five physical senses in the body. We have feelings. And, uh, I think a lot of times the problem is, is we want to, we don't want to, we want, we become disembodied. We cut off from that. We go into the past. We go into the future. We go into our psychological experience for some kind of consolation because we want to be out of the unpleasantness and the difficulty of the body and the feelings, which simply cannot be done. Now, you have some control over it. You know, you can eat carbs and sugar, and that feels good for a minute. You can do drugs. You know, I, I, I definitely tried to out-drug the body system and found that it didn't work. <laughs> you know, I'm sure I know some of you have tried as well. It, it does work for a little bit. Uh, but then it, then it, then it, find, then it actually creates more problems than it, than it solved. So I, so these first two are really, really important. And that's why they're the first two foundations of mindfulness. Cause the body's trying, Buddha's trying to get us to like live in the present, to be in the body, to cultivate a, a caring, kind relationship to the body, to actually have maybe a bit of gratitude, dare I say, for the body. Right. And so the, those are the first two foundations of mindfulness. And then he gets, then he starts to get into the third and fourth foundation of mindfulness. This is where you have a bit of influence is the word I would use. So, so the mental state, the chitta. Now the word chitta, you probably, if you listen to my podcast or, or have followed me a bit, I, I've said endlessly 
speaking about this word because I think it's the most, one of the most important terms and ideas in the entire Buddhist canon. Uh, this idea of chitta or mind, or we would say heart mind, the, the, in very everyday terms or science based terms, the entire a cognitive emotional process, which arises and passes away all of the time. Now, a lot of times that process, the cognitive emotional process is what is really caught up in trying to get what it wants and avoid what it don't, doesn't want. The chitta is largely trying to, to acquire the desires and avoid the discontents in regards to the world. Right? So, uh, this is what we would call it. We could call it, uh, there's a couple words we could use. We could say it's the mental state. What is the state of the mind? Which is pretty good. Uh, the state of a union, you know, what is the state of the mind right now? Uh, the attitude of mind, I think, is almost maybe the best word. I use it a lot. What kind of an attitude do I have in my mind? And the interesting thing about attitude is as soon as you become mindful or you start to recognize an attitude in mind, it's actually very quickly, it's very easy to change attitude very quickly if you have any willingness to do so. You ever just been in a wicked shitty mood and you just get so tired of being in a shitty mood you just decide to have a positive attitude and the whole fucking thing changes like that? Right? So the, the so the so the the neuroscientists would say that the mind is neuroplastic, meaning that it can adapt it can turn it can literally turn on a dime, which sometimes works to your advantage, sometimes it does not. But this is what's conditioned. This is what has language. This is what has ideas. But this is what can be liberated. So when the Buddha is talking about liberation in the Satipatthana, we can't liberate the body. We can't liberate the feelings. What becomes liberated is the mind, the chitta. We liberate the chitta from the destructive forces of greed, hatred, and confusion. And largely, we could say that's the whole project. Thank you for your time. Good night. You know, that's, you know, that's, that's really it. And so what he's trying to say in the third foundation of mindfulness, he's trying to get us to recognize greed, which is a kind of desire, my greediness for the world, the things that I want. Now, wanting things from the world also, let's be clear, isn't bad or wrong. You know, if you're hungry, you should eat something. You know, it's okay that we want to have a decent car to drive or have a home to live in. Like, we're not monastic. So we don't want to, we don't want to turn this whole wanting things from the world into a derogatory thing, but it can get out of hand pretty fucking quick if you haven't noticed. And, and it's not that we want to abandon all that, but we want to do is we want to make sure that we're not convinced that the goal of our, of our life is, is that. That's part of it. That's part of what we would call hedonic happiness, you know? So, like, if you look at the Cultivating Emotional Balance program that I talk about a lot, which I think does a great job of this because it deals with secular people, which is what we are, is that we're trying to find a balance between hedonic... We should have some hedonic happiness. We should have some desires from the world that are working for our, for us. But we also need to balance that with some inner cultivation. So that that's that's a whole tricky game. But just be clear, so we're trying to, so the greed and the hatred, which is the desire and the discontent, we, 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 we don't want it to become to that level of intensification. Because you ever, like, like an extreme aversion or hatred, you ever think to yourself, uh, I'll be totally happy when I get rid of it. If this annoying person stops working at my job, I'll totally be happy. 
I'll totally be happy if I get rid of this and I'll be totally happy if I get that. How many times have you had that thought? A million? How many times has it actually happened? Have you ever gotten anything or avoided anything and then just were happy forever after that? You know what the funny thing is? You're going to wake up tomorrow and do it again. I do it every day. I love watching my mind do it. I have this thing where I I just look at my mind and go, really? Really? This again? You know? When my bank account reaches X and X amount, I'll be happy. It's like like we fall for it over and over again. And, of course, this is part of our, you know, conditioning. We're we're also wired that way. So this is where we really want to keep an eye on that. And then the fourth foundation of mindfulness uh, which is a whole, you know, we could talk about the Eightfold Path, but that's really the world of ideas, um, of thinking, uh, of, you know, not the state of the mind, but the, 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 the aspect of mind, which really is, is going to drive us towards, towards engaging or disengaging in any kind of behavior. So based on what's going on in my body, based on how I feel, and based on my mind state, that is largely going to influence the behavior that I engage in in the present moment. Does that make sense? You've probably seen this. So uh, if I'm the blind driver and I'm just habitually following, chasing after pleasure and pushing away pain, then I'm not in my body, I'm not in my feelings, I'm not, I'm not being mindful, I'm not contemplating, I'm not bringing care and attention, I'm not directly knowing, I'm, I'm ignoring all of that. And I think this is where most people live. Most people just live and operate in the fourth foundation of mindfulness, in the, in the world of ideas and choices and things to get and things to have, and it's just driven by the engine of getting what one wants and avoiding what one don't want. And I think that's probably 80% of the society that we live in. You know, and people, <laughs> people have varying degrees of success with this project. And so some of us, you know, like, uh, we, we've, we've, we've made the choice to say, okay, like, I don't like that. That's kind of where I think we end up with, we're like, well, I don't want to, I'm not going to bet on that horse, actually. You know, that, that, that I don't want, I don't want to just be the, be blindly driven. I, I want to be involved in some ways. Basically what you're saying is I actually want to be involved in my life because you can put the mind body system on autopilot and live an entire life. You don't actually have to participate in any of it. You ever meet people like that? You're like, are you even in there? Right? So this is really kind of a noble thing. I think if mindfulness is a noble thing, it's like we're saying, like, I know I'm actually, I want to be involved. I want to deal with the demands of my body. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say yes to that. Uh, I'm going to uh, deal with the demands and the reality and the cravings and the aversions of having to be dictated by my feelings. I'm going to get involved in that. I'm going to do something about that. I'm going to do something about this mind. Uh, I'm going to do something about my behavior. And that's, you know, not, not to, well, I'll say it anyway, that's, that's what's called patiso tagami. Um, so we've been talking about mindfulness, and we will for a while. So just to kind of talk about what we did last week a little bit, 
um, is the, the teachings on mindfulness. Um, now, any mindfulness you learn, whether you learn it on an app or Headspace or Insight Meditation or MBSR, basically all of the teachings or the instructions, I should say, because mindfulness um, is more instructional than it is kind of a teaching. You know, mindfulness is about us being able to close our eyes, observe present time experience, and being able to actually um, witness or to see um, how things are unfolding in real time. So it's one of the, the sets of Dharma teachings that's very instructional. Do this, do that, put your attention on your breath, notice your mind wander, bring that back. It's very much about learning how to, what's the word? uh <laughs> how to manage the 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 equipment you know we we do have this you know mind body emotional we 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 sometimes i just think about what i live inside of is just kind of this equipment uh and that i i have varying degrees of success as how well i'm able to utilize the equipment and so the buddha is just like here's the equipment here's how it works uh here's what you can do here's what you can't do good luck so the so the the teachings I'm reluctant to say teachings the instructions on mindfulness all come out of this teaching called the Satipatthana Sutta, which is good because that gives us a sense of okay this is where basically anything I've heard about mind development comes from this one body of work, and as I've said before it's very organized it's very structured, and so um, last week uh, I talked about the definition which I'll go over just a bit. And then I'm not going to get into the refrain. I want to get into the meat of the matter, um, which is really where it begins. So, and where it begins, probably no surprise to any of us is mindfulness of breathing. And so this is one of the questions that I get a lot is um, when you, when you entered the mindfulness space uh, in the various ways that you do, one of the probably teachings that you get the most of or hear the most about um, is mindfulness of breathing. And that's such, that's such a predominant instruction that sometimes people can get the sense that that's all there is. You know, I meet people every once in a while when I travel who've been doing mindfulness of breathing for 20 years and they're like, does, it, does, it, does this go anywhere from here? And it's like, yeah. It does go, it does go somewhere from here, but we have to start somewhere. Um, so the, the Satipatthana Sutta again starts with, uh, the word is atapi, which means to contemplate. I actually like this word contemplative, contemplation, contemplative practices, much more, I prefer that word much more than meditation. I actually think we can do, do away with this word meditation, we all be better off. Um, but mindfulness is a contemplative practice. It's about looking and, and contemplate in a Buddhist definition means to repeatedly look at. So when you're looking, when you're, whether you're studying music or you're reading a book or you're trying to learn something, anytime you're learning something, what are you doing? You're repeatedly looking at the material that you're trying to learn. That's how the mind learns. It continues to look at something. So, you know, when you look at all prayer and all meditation across every tradition, spirit tradition, if you studied those in a university, they would all fall under the umbrella of contemplative practices. Now, probably no surprise to most of us, when it comes to meditative training, the Buddhists 
kind of have the corner on the market because the the Buddhist meditation system, the Buddhist contemplative practice is very, very precise. It's very, very sophisticated. It has an ethical dimension, has a philosophical dimension, it has a systems theory dimension to it. It's really pretty scientific at its root, unlike most contemplative practices, which are kind of can be a little bit, you know, woo-woo. The Buddha does definitely not do woo-woo, okay? He's as anti-woo-woo as it gets. So he, <laughs> Fred's like, that's right. <laughs> so um, so I'm just going to read this because this is just like, a, like right out of the text. He says, and now practitioners, how does one, oh, I see that's breathing. Okay. In regard to the body, one abides contemplating the body. And he actually gives you some instructions, which is interesting. You know, because of course they're out in the woods, they're out in forests. He says here, uh, gone to the forest or to the root of a tree or to an empty hut, the practitioner sits down, having folded their legs crosswise. So actually the instruction is to sit down and cross your legs. That's literally in here. Uh, sitting your body upright and erect, establishing mindfulness in front of them. Mindful you breathe in, mindful you breathe out. Breathing in long, one knows I breathe in long. Breathing out long, one knows I breathe out long. Breathing in short, one knows I breathe in short. Breathing out short, one knows I breathe out short. One trains thus, I shall breathe in experiencing the whole body. I shall breathe out experiencing the whole body. He trains thus, I shall breathe in calming the body activity. I shall breathe out calming the body activity. So as you can see, I'm almost reluctant to read it verbatim. It's so repetitive. You know, because you have to realize these guys didn't have written words. They didn't write anything down. The Buddha didn't have an iPad. He didn't have a pen. He didn't even have he didn't even have written word. Okay, they had to memorize this shit. So the reason why it's so repetitive is that's one of the ways to memorize things is you repeat the same thing over and over and over again. So, you know, this is, um, you know, we hear this and I can almost feel your mind go, yeah, yeah, I get it. Breathe in, breathe out, breathe in, calm the body, breathe out, calm the body. But I don't think that we appreciate actually what this really means. Um, mindfulness of breathing. And I don't know if you, those, for those, I know some of you probably do listen to my podcast. I do have a talk there from one of my retreats I just did about 30 years in the Dharma because I just... Um, Actually, about 30 years ago, I started this business. And actually, this was the thing. What I'm talking about tonight was the thing that fucking blew me wide open. And so, um, you know, why is that helpful? So, first of all, the Buddhist places a tremendous amount of emphasis on embodiment, on being in the body, now he wasn't a scientist. He was he was definitely scientific in his thought, but he probably didn't know 
that we have a central nervous system. He probably didn't know that breathing is what regulates the central nervous system. He probably didn't have a lot of education and trauma and trauma symptoms and stuff. Although maybe he did, I don't know. But when you look at um, how we want to regulate our system. So if you think about our system, we have a mind, body, emotion system. And basically the reason why people don't do well generally speaking from a scientific perspective is that we're dysregulated we're, we're we're thinking too much about everything all the time we have all these diagnoses anxiety depression you know trauma of course is everywhere now and let's be honest trauma is not new people have been traumatized since the dawn of time you know we just know more about it now but it's um uh so we 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 don't do well because we're not integrated. We're not we're not aware of the fact that we have a whole system, and we don't really know where our agency lies. And so, to just blend some science here because I think it's really important. Um, when you look at the way the nervous system is designed, it's really actually quite simple. So, uh, and the nervous system is kind of the most important part of the mind-body system. The, the nervous system is the bridge between the mind and the body. And so if your nervous system is dysregulated, you're stressed out, you're anxious, you're thinking a lot, you know, it's really unhealthy for us to be in a dysregulated nervous system. So when you, when you, it's interesting that he emphasizes breathing in and breathing out as much as he does, because when we breathe in, we we every time you breathe in you and you engage your sympathetic nervous system okay that's the gas pedal the gas pedal in the nervous system is breathing in the breathing out is the brake pedal and the brake pedal is called the parasympathetic dominant nervous system so it's the sympathetic nervous system versus the parasympathetic nervous system now all the cash and prizes and all the goodies for human regulation, nervous system regulation is in the out breath, is in the parasympathetic. And so when you look at our culture and you look at the research, most people in our society are called sympathetic dominant. So they're, they're, we're, we're, we're very gas pedally. We get ourselves all worked up. And you notice, you might notice when you get worked up and you're anxious and you're upset and you're fixing and avoiding and controlling and getting all worked up about all kinds of shit, which I suspect that you do from time to time, you're probably taking very short breaths, very shallow, kind of grabbing and dropping. Like, you know, if someone has a panic attack, what do they do? It's all, it's all breathing related, right? So one of the shifts that you want to make, and this is kind of like basic trauma therapy 101, is that as a human being, as a mammal, you want to learn how to become parasympathetic dominant. So that means you're more in the out breath, which is the resting. So there's all these exercises. In fact, I was talking to Daniel Goleman recently about this. And even during COVID, like people who were working first responders in the hospital, they were teaching them all these nervous system regulation practices, like a long, long out breath, you know, long, long out breath. Now, one thing that's just kind of interesting that you might notice, and maybe you'll notice it tonight as we practice, that I noticed when someone pointed out to me, is when I breathe in, generally speaking, I'm more focused. 
So when I breathe in, I notice the in-breath. I'm more in tune to my body. And then when I breathe out, my mind wanders. So I tend to be more focused on the in-breath and less focused on the out-breath, right? And so I almost, oh, this isn't true now, but generally speaking, you usually will almost always notice the moment the in-breath begins because that's like a gas pedal. If you notice any system, if you're doing mindfulness of breathing, the one thing you're probably tracking mostly is the moment that the in-breath gets engaged, you know, the sipping on the breath. And so um, you notice that more, but you probably almost, if you like start to watch, you'll probably recognize that you almost never notice or you're not really fully aware the moment where the breath is done the passing, the, the back end of it, the breathing out. You can even play with it right now. Just kind of breathe out and see if you can follow it till it's completely out. And then when it's completely out, that's sort of your nervous system at its best. There's a rest at the end of the out breath. And then, of course, you breathe in again, and that's kind of how that works, right? So... Um, it's interesting to some of us who maybe been doing this for a while to realize even when we do mindfulness of breathing, we're not really mindful of breathing because we're not with the whole system. You know, we breathe in, we're really aware of the first three or four seconds of the in-breath. And then when it starts to turn into the out-breath, we kind of start to wander. We think about what we have to do tomorrow. And then we get to that space. And usually when you notice that your mind is wandering, you will likely observe that it's wandering at the end of the outbreath. And you wake up, you're like, oh yeah, shit, I gotta. And then if that's why you notice the in-breath, because you you wake up there. And so, you know, the mind is is relaxed in that state. It's parasympathetic dominant in that state. It may be regulated in that state. And the reason why mindfulness of breathing is so taught in secular uh, mindfulness circles is, well, first of all, it's, it's, it's rich within the teachings. But second of all, it's really hard. It's actually kind of impossible to be dysregulated while you're practicing mindfulness of breathing. While you're practicing mindfulness of breathing, it's a little bit impossible to be a fucking psycho, basically. Like you kind of have to get your shit a little bit together to even sit still and be a little bit aware of the breathing, right? And I use that. I know it sounds funny, but I, I, I don't like to say the breath. I like to say breathing. There is no the breath. Where's the breath? The breath is not a thing. It's not a noun. There is no the breath. There's breathing. Breathing is happening all of the time. And so one of the big shifts that we try to make, and I don't know if I mentioned this in previous calls because I've been talking about this a lot lately, and, and one of the big, big shifts that we're trying to do in mindfulness practice is we're trying to shift our kind of mode of operating from, from place to a ground. So that's why it's called mindfulness, four foundations of mindfulness, 
Satipatthana, the grounding, in many ways, the most practical, accurate way to define what mindfulness is, is the intentional grounding of attention. I'm choosing to take my attention and be in the ground, the earth element of my body, the wind element of my breath. I'm really trying to come into contact with the present moment experience. The body is my portal to the present moment. The present moment is infinitely forgiving. It's under your nose 24 seven. It's always right, right here waiting for you to get back to it when you're done doing your placing. I'm a person, and place can mean a lot of things, your role in society, your job, uh, the, 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 you know, this place that you're trying to get to. Do you all have that feeling that in your life there's somewhere you're trying to get to? And then when you get there, you gotta get to the next fucking place. It's called placing. So either we're placing or we're grounding. And I like this word grounding because we use that word. That word means something to us. Even even people who aren't even interested in this kind of work, we say that. We say, oh, I like that person that's really grounded. I feel really grounded. So when we say that to be grounded, to be more grounded, we talk about that in a very positive light, don't we? We say, oh, yeah, we, to be to be grounded. But we're not grounded. We're placing. We're, where, where are we going to go? How are we going to get there? How much money is it going to cost to get there? When are we going to get there? I'm going to be happy when I get there. When I get there, I'll be happy. And what happens is we, it's almost like, it's almost like a, um, how do I say this? It's almost like a Lee Scratch Perry 60s slap back delay reverb, right? Because there's like the life that I'm having right now, talking to y'all right now. And then there's this little slapback thing in my mind that's like the life I could maybe be having if I'd made different choices or if I think things have gone differently. We, we do live in this kind of split reality where there's like the present moment experience, there's my life, which is happening in the ground of now. And then there's like this imaginary other person that maybe I would like to be, that would be the better person to be, that would have a better job and live in a better neighborhood and be in a better relationship. And you know that, you know, that person, are you familiar with this other person that you, that you aren't, that you would rather be at time to time? That person is not fucking real. Right. So that, so they, so there's nothing, there's nothing of value for you to try to become that person. Uh, because the more we get caught up in the imagination and the place and the what ifs and then the onlys and I'll be happy whens, the more that becomes predominant, the more right now feels lacking. And I would say, and I would say that pretty, pretty, I would argue this pretty endlessly, is that we live, especially our society at this time in this place, is a tremendous pathology of lack. I mean, our whole, our whole economy is based on you feeling lacking in some way. And there's something that you can download or purchase or get or have that will make you less lacking. Right. And that, that's a fucking, you know, that's sort of how our economy, our economy depends on you feeling lacking. And so we contribute to that sense of lack by not being grounded. 
right? And so, uh, and so the Buddha is very clear at the onset of this whole goddamn project that that the first thing you got to do is try to actually live your life, the one that you're actually having right now, because there's really actually no other alternative anyway. Um, and so he's always trying to, so he says, you know, young man, young lady, why don't you find a tree? Why don't you find an empty hat? Why don't you find a corner in the office in your house and have a seat, sit down and begin to observe what the fuck is going on, right? And so what's the most obvious thing that's happening is breathing. Breathing is our most primordial relationship to life. In fact, to be in tune with the breath is to actually be in tune with the pulse of life itself. And the breath is low and slow. The breath comes in, it goes out, you know. So imagine if you actually lived your life. Imagine if your mind could get on board and not really go much faster than the pace of the in and out breath. I suspect you'd be all much better off if we did that. And we probably find when we do that from time to time, we do feel better. And also when we do that, we probably get, we probably get everything done anyway. You know, and this is really, really hard because it, it, what is, what this comes up against is a couple of big things is busyness. We're all wicked busy. Well, there's also a, a tremendous glorification in our society that being busy like means you're successful. Um, there's also this impatience. Uh, there's also the feeling of being hurried. I'm in a hurry. I feel like I'm in a hurry sometimes. Sometimes I feel like I'm in a hurry and I have actually nothing to do. You know, it happens to me from time to time. I'm, I like, if there's one thing I'm not proud of or, or I'm not impressed with myself in any way, I am not impressed at all with myself about my level of, of patience in general. Maybe it's because I'm from the East Coast or whatever, but like I just, <laughs> just one thing that I don't know has improved much over the last 30 years, I am not a patient person. Like I can literally be in a coffee shop somewhere with actually nothing to do for hours and hours and hours and having to wait seven minutes for the person to take my coffee order at moments of that. Well, I'll be a fucking lunatic. Come on, come on, come on. Hurry up, hurry up, hurry up. Hurry up. It's like, and sometimes I'll catch myself. I'm like, what are you doing? Like you're standing in a building. You have nothing to do. You have nowhere to go. You could stand it. It could take an hour for you to get your coffee, and it actually wouldn't matter. What is your problem? It's like, well, I want to go. I want to get to the place. I want to get to the next place. And then when I get to the next place, I'll stand in the line at the next place and do the same goddamn thing. Hurry up and wait. Hurry up and wait. For those of you who are musicians, that's kind of the joke. I think actually Jason Isbell has it in one of his songs. It's like, when you're traveling, it's like they call it hurry up and wait because you hustle and hustle and work and drive all this place to get to the venue. And then you get to the venue and you sit backstage for two hours doing nothing, waiting to play. But we, we, we really now the reason why I think this is so important is you pro if you, if you take this seriously, you probably are waking up to the fact that you have tremendous opportunities to practice every day. Right. Just by watching this gotta get to the next place syndrome. Gotta get to the next place, gotta get to the next place, gotta get to the next thing.
right? And so that 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 creates this kind of dysregulated feeling, being dysregulated, um, feeling incomplete, um, feeling kind of uh, disintegrated, like being kind of like differentiated, like kind of being parted out, uh, not being whole, being unwhole, incomplete. You know, and that that that's very anxiety producing, um, very mental agitation producing. When if we could just stand still for five or 10 seconds and do some basic mindfulness of breathing, all that would stop. Right. You know, and, and, and if I, I actually find it a little bit irritating after all these years, I know this, I believe everything I'm telling you is true. And I guarantee you, I'll find I'll find myself somewhere tomorrow. Totally not doing everything I just said. All right, that's why it's a practice. You know, so um, the other thing about breathing is so helpful is it's totally portable. Like you can actually take your cushion everywhere with you. You know, it's totally on the go. It's like it's right there the whole time. And so the other thing to add to this, because he does go into the body, the actual, when you look at the whole structure of the Satipatthana, uh, as he talks about the foundations of mindfulness, there's four, there's the body, there's feelings, there's mental states, and there's kind of mental concepts. The body is the biggest section. Um, and so the other thing to add here, because if this, was, this was troubling for me and it might be troubling for some of you, some of us actually don't do particularly well with breathing as an object um, because we start thinking about it or we start, you know, and I, and I had this problem for years and other people have reported it. So he ends the section, of course, here by saying... Um, Mindfulness, breathing in, breathing in with the whole body, I train myself to calm the body activities. Breathe out, calming the body activities. And then he gives this little example. He says, just as a skilled woodworker or his apprentice, when making a long turn, cutting a board, he knows I'm making a long turn. When making a short turn, cutting the board, he knows I make a short turn. And so he's always making, this is one thing that's interesting I find, is the Buddha often makes an analogy to Dharma practice with, uh, with, with a kind of tradesperson. Like he, he compares meditating to being a carpenter who's cutting a piece of wood. And when he's cutting the piece of wood, he has to be paying attention to that piece of wood. He has to be following the line. He has to know what's going on. And so he always, not always, but he often is making analogies to potters, to farmers, to butchers even. Um, there's, there's a section where he talks about the four elements. He makes an analogy uh, to somebody who butchers an animal into pieces. So what he's trying to say is that actually, which is interesting because it got buried, but like, and this has always been on my, my, I'll get on my soapbox about secular dharma, is that obviously if the Buddha is making analogies to tradesmen, then what he's trying to indicate to us is that you don't have to be a monk to do this shit. You can be a person living in the world, which is what I suspect all of you are. 
So uh, that, of course, as I said before, has gotten lost and we don't have a um, a sense of what that was up to. But But it is interesting when he makes an analogy about meditation skill training mind mind training the analogies he makes is to somebody who is a tradesperson and i find that to be quite interesting because what he's saying is you need to be with the experience you need to learn the experience you need to pay attention now the reason i bring this breath thing up is is that you can you can just use the rising and falling of the breath but you can actually uh, have a bodied awareness, which is what I do when I when I practice this practice, I notice my breathing, but I notice two things is that I notice I'm mindful of my body. And when I say body, I mean, there's a global awareness, I practice a global awareness of the body. So I can use I use very basic things like temperature. Temperature is actually a fucking wicked good meditation object. Because usually if I'm sitting somewhere meditating, uh, I'm usually sitting somewhere where the temperature is comfortable, right? I don't go out. I don't go. I don't go out and sit in a snowbank in the wintertime, and I don't sit in my backyard in the blazing heat. I sit inside my fucking house with air conditioning, like you know. <laughs> so temperature, I can. I I can feel the body has whole temperature. I can use just weight of the body. The body's heavy, right? Um, and so, so sometimes just there is a body, there is a body sitting, there is a body breathing. So I've been doing this so long. I actually haven't for years, if not decades, I almost never use just breathing as a primary object. I use the breathing body, the hyphen breathing hyphen body as a kind of holistic experience. So I'm, I'm giving myself, uh, I'm more, I'm more awareness based practitioner than concentration practitioner some practitioners like to have a single object and they focus on that single object that's not i don't do that i i I, it doesn't work for me i have a more open breathing temperature body uh a more what i would say a more broad attention or actually i would even use the word liberal i'm more liberal i don't really care you know, maybe I'll noticing one moment I'm noticing the heat on my forehead. The next moment I'm noticing my feet on the carpet. The next moment I'm noticing my belly rising and falling. So that for those of you who find that when you try to focus on a singular object, you might get triggered a little bit or you get upset or you get you get kind of tight. Um, you can drop that and just kind of have a more body breath awareness practice. So what I'll do is I'll do both um, and I'll let you play with this. I would imagine many of you have negotiated this on your own, but it, it is funny to me sometimes. You know, this is like, I mean, if there is any mindfulness 101 instruction, this is it, right? I mean, you know, like it doesn't, you, you it's not very long before someone's teaching you mindfulness of breathing. Um, so my, my hope is to kind of get you maybe a little more excited about it now than you have been and really trying to be more in tune with that experience. So being with the whole in breath, the whole out breath. So we'll, we'll sit with, sit with that for, for about 20 minutes or so. So I talked more than I intended to. Um, I didn't think I had much to say about mindfulness breathing, but I guess I was wrong yet yeah, wrong again, Dave. All right, everybody. Welcome to Dharma Live Online. Good to see you. 
So we've been talking about the, the teachings of mindfulness, the Satipatthana Sutta, um, which is basically any mindfulness instruction you've ever gotten comes from there at some point. Um, so we have these four foundations, uh, the body, the foundations of the body, feeling tones, mental states, and, and kind of mental activities. And so we're still on the body. We talked about the breath. Uh, Chris talked about the elements. I'm going to kind of go through the body uh, pretty extensively, and then we'll move to probably Vaden in the next couple of weeks. Um, feeling tone is the word for that. And also, I just want to highlight that we actually spent some time on some stuff in the teachings on mindfulness that nobody else seems all that interested in, and that part's the definition. So the Buddha sets this up, you know, this word mindfulness is, of course, everywhere, right? We see it everywhere. Um, and, you know, to some degree, a lot of people um, not really sure what the hell it means. Um, and one of the things I've noticed that I'm not interested in doing, there's a bit of a trend. You might have noticed this if you're listening to different talks. A lot of Dharma teachers are actually dropping the word mindfulness, and they're using the word awareness so much now, which is... I was doing that a little bit, but I think that's actually a bad move because because of the popularity of mindfulness and the popularity of secular mindfulness and the 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 racks of magazines in the health food store that say mindfulness on them. Um, I think it's a bad, actually a mistake for Buddhists, especially Theravada insight teachers, to want to depart from the word. It's our fucking word. You know what I mean? And like it's getting watered down by the mainstream culture. So I, I don't think we should just let them have it. I think we need to take it back. Um, so I'm getting a little tired of this, like, um, you know, uh, posturing. Uh, and, and people will say, like, oh, mindfulness, kind of, they say it's a clunky word and it's, you know, it's hard to define. It's like, no, it's not. It's just, it's just been watered down by the mainstream culture. So it's like, I, so I feel like you've probably heard me talk about this on my podcast. I feel that way about the word mindfulness as I had it ever, as I've talked about the word faith before. I'm, I'm tired of like religion and, you know, mainstream culture stealing words that are good words. And then we're stuck having to come up with some other version of it. So, so I, I'm on a big quest to take mindfulness back. And so, <clears throat> to get off my soapbox for a minute, uh, the um, you know the way that the Buddha defines it, he talks about my, mindfulness first of all as a contemplative practice. It's a it's a practice where we look within, where we ask questions, where we consider what's going on. It's a it's actually a frame to how to live one's life: present time awareness, being aware of the full experience. Uh, so it's a contemplative practice that we do carefully. Uh, with which which implies a sense of conscience, a sense of concern, a sense of kindness, clear knowing, which I talked about before, but direct knowing, and this is where that word present moment comes in. To know experience directly, directly means as it's happening right here, right now. Um, and then the one that's I think really interesting that I've talked about is is also mindfulness, free from desire and discontent in regards to the world. Um, which is really hard and really important. And I think it's interesting that the Buddha way back when, 2,500 years ago, said, listen, like, we are all so caught up 
in uh, what's going on in the world that actually to, to sit and practice meditation, to have a contemplative practice, we actually have to let that shit go. Otherwise, we just end up thinking about it the whole time. Um, so we, we talked about, so he, so he, uh, the way that I think about it is um, actually nothing mystical about it. We seem to have this person who was, like many of us, confused about the world, didn't like any of the things that were being offered by the world, was interested in trying to basically come to terms with the reality of reality that we're going to, you know, we're here, we're going to get old and we're going to die. And, you know, like that's troubling. And how do we want to square that round circle? And so he sits down and just starts watching what's happening. And he's like, well, what's happening? He's like, well, I'm sitting here. I'm breathing. Uh, I have all these sensory doors. I have a body. I have feelings, you know, he just is like, he just kind of got like real, real pragmatic and said, okay, what's actually happening? Right? What's really going on here? So really his, his, his original assessment was phenomenological, what's actually going on in direct experience. And so he places a lot of emphasis on the breath and the breath and the body are part of the package of what we call the first foundation of mindfulness, the grounding of attention, the grounding of awareness. In many ways, he's trying to get you to pay attention to something that you typically take for granted. I mean, how much, I mean, the average person, how, how embodied are they really? You know, how, how, how much aware of our bodies are we? We're not, not so much. We're mostly just dictated by the demands of the body. The body wanting this and not wanting that. And, and, and many of the demands of the body is the body, you might have noticed, your body wants to be comfortable. Right? I want to be comfortable. And we do lots of weird, ridiculous shit to try to be comfortable. You know, and so really he, what he's saying is you're actually, before you get comfortable, young man, you might want to learn how to be uncomfortable. Because the big problem here is that you're uncomfortable and you are going to try to fix that. And, and, you know, and we live in a world that's basically like everything we do is about trying to be comfortable, comfortable, comfortable. And so... And, and there's a lot to be said about the body. The body's your vehicle for life. It's what drives everything around. And Chris talked about the elements, but the, in, in, in the section of the Satipatthana, the Buddha really just kind of exhaustively unpacks the body. So he starts with um, breathing. Then he goes to the, to the postures, sitting, standing, walking, lying down. Then he goes to the activities, which is basically Sati Sampajana, which means to know what you're doing while you're doing it. So if you're washing the dishes, just wash the goddamn dishes. If you're folding towels, fold towels. If you're driving to work, drive to work. If you're drinking coffee in the morning, sitting on the couch, do that, right? Which is kind of a radical request because like, like if I'm drinking coffee in the morning, I don't know about you, but I'm actually doing a lot more than drinking coffee. Like, if I have a phone in my hand, forget it, which I often do, to be honest with you. I, I'm drinking coffee. I'm looking at my phone. I'm checking my emails. I'm pissed off at the certain emails that haven't been answered yet. I'm thinking about my day. I'm 
I'm, I'm planning all the shit that's going to happen today that I'm going to have to deal with. It's just like all that's going on. He, or, or you could just, here's a radical idea. You could just sit there and drink your coffee. You could just do that. There would be there would be appropriate to just do that. And I don't know about you, man, but that's hard. So this mindfulness and daily activities is like the Buddha's really like you should know what you're doing whilst you're doing it. Now that I'm realizing there's a lot of stuff in here, I probably won't get through all of the stuff. So we'll have to stick with the body because this Sati Sampajana thing, I want to do a whole week on that because um, it's important. And then he goes into the. Um, he goes from the activities, he goes into the four elements, which Chris talked about last week, and then he goes into the anatomical parts in which he identifies 32. Now, I think it's a bit weird, to be honest with you. I also think it's a bit creepy that 2,500 years ago, the Buddha knew all the fucking anatomical parts of the body. Like, did he chop one up and look at all the pieces like it's you know what i mean like nowadays we could go on google and just download a list but how did this guy know let me see if i can find it here about these 20 these anatomical parts he says again practitioners one reviews the same body from the soles of the feet from the top of the hair enclosed by skin as full of many kinds of impurities thus the body there the body here is made of head hairs body hairs nails teeth skin flesh sinews bones bone marrow kidneys heart liver diaphragm spleen lungs bowels mesentery contents of the stomach feces, bile, phlegm, pus, blood, sweat, fat, tears, grease, spittle, snot, oil of the joints, and urine. Just as though there were a bag with an opening at both ends full of many sorts of grain, such a hill of rice, red rice, beans, peas, millet, and white rice, a man with good eyes would open it and review it. This is the hill, this is the rice, these are the beans, these are the peas, this is the millet, this is the white rice. So you would review the body the same. Now, I've done lots of mindfulness work and I've never had anybody guide me through that shit. You know what I mean? This is, I think, where, um, where is it too? that he this is where i think basically john cabot zinn got his famous body scan you know scanning the body head to toe slowly but like i think it's a little bit weird and i haven't looked at the poly on this how does the buddha know about the spleen the kidneys and the liver and that shit like i don't know that's kind of it is that's a little bit odd 2500 years ago i mean did did, did somebody sit down and chop a body up and look at all the parts i mean maybe they did but that, that always threw me off a little bit. And that's probably why you don't hear this so much when you hear about the body, because it's a little bit kind of, kind of surgical, kind of medical. But what he's really trying to get us to do is to be, to be not so enchanted with the body. 
and to realize actually that you know we take my, my your body is doing there are so many systems in your body operating right now that either you don't know about that you take for granted like it's amazing what this thing does and i think what he's really getting at is how much we take it for granted because especially in the modern world it's all about the mind right the mind the mind the mind me 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 we think about that stuff so he's really trying to get us to be uh more embodied um and so I always thought that was a strange um, kind of practice. There is one guy who's actually, I never listened to him or met him, but I respect him greatly. His name is Bob Stahl. You can look him up. His name is Bob Stahl. He lives out in Santa Cruz. He's an insight teacher. He teaches at Spirit Rock. He's also a very famous, I don't know if he's famous, but he's a very well-respected MBSR teacher. He works with John Kabat-Zinn doing the mindfulness-based stress reduction. And he actually is the only person I know of who has actually developed and has quite a lot of programs on the 32 parts, the 32 anatomical parts. He's done quite a lot of stuff on that. I don't know much about it other than what I just said, but he's the only person I know who's really kind of pinned that down a little bit. So then the body, the Buddha does these anatomical parts. And then right after that, he also does um, a death meditation, corpse and decay, which, you know, you don't hear a lot about that. But when you read like stories of the monks, um, and maybe we'll talk about this at some point, there's a really fabulous book written by a woman with her PhD thesis. Uh, it's called Forest Recollections. Um, and it's a, it, it's all stories about the Thai forest monks. So Ajahn Chah, Ajahn Moon, these Thai forest masters who were kind of badasses. They used to do these things called a tudong. And what they would do is there were these there were these Buddhist monks probably around the early 1900s is the timeline who were kind of over the whole city monk thing, being living being a monk, living in the city, studying scriptures walking around the city begging for food they just kind of thought it was kind of like they weren't that into it and they were like they really wanted to get back to doing what the buddha was doing which was basically meditating in the woods and so what they did is they left the city and they started that was the birth of what's known as the thai forest tradition which is jack cornfield's lineage my teacher noel levine uh, was associated with that ajahn Chah's kind of the big part of that and also all these other english american teachers like ajahn sachito and ajahn Samedo and ajahn amaro a lot of these guys are really really great and they are from the thai forest tradition and these monks would just basically get like a backpack and a little bit of gear and they just would go out in the thai forest and they would just meditate in the woods and there's a lot of stories they would go to the charnel grounds and they would actually meditate and they would just watch corpses rot as part of their practice and part of their practice is like, that's going to be me at some point. Uh, you know, we, you, you could never pull this shit off in our country. Right. But it's like, this is the kind of stuff that gets brushed over in mindfulness of the body. You know, usually it's just kind of like we do a body scan, we do mindfulness of breathing. But when you look at the teachings in the Satipatthana, the section on the body is actually the largest section of the whole teaching. You know it's, it's huge and so it's it's a bit um 
probably for obvious reasons people have avoided that but there 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 really is this way in which the buddha is really in kind of a radical in your face way and the buddha is a bit in your face anyway he's not a very cozy guy you know it's that your you know your body's gonna die you know you, you know except for nowadays we have modern things where we go to the morgue and they pump us full of a bunch of crazy shit from aldehyde and stuff but back in the day it was like they just you die and they would either you'd put you in the charnel ground or they'd chuck you on a fire that was it <laughs> you know what i mean that was sort of what they did and uh you know they had a much more india for sure but asian cultures have a, i think they have a much more healthy dare i say or maybe that's correct uh they're they they have a lot more realistic understanding of death and the death process where in our society we kind of you know we we don't really deal with it so well i mean you, you have a loved one who dies and you what you get maybe you get a day off of work maybe not even you're back at work on monday we you know we put people in boxes and pump them full of formaldehyde and make them look like they're not dead and go to the wake i don't know if you've ever been to one of these wakes i'm sure you have they're fucking creepy man you know it's like it's like it's it's how, it's the ultimate denial right it's like put somebody in a box put makeup on them put some nice clothes on them, basically make them look like they're sleeping. Uh, and it's like, everybody knows what's going on there. Uh, and so there's definitely a cultural kind of shift here because it is, it is ultimately the body that dies, you know, and the Buddha, you know, people argue about this stuff all the time, but he, um, you know, he doesn't, he, Anatta, you know, this teaching of not self, which I'm sure you've heard, which you know, I'm maybe not a huge fan of this. It's actually not self. It's not, it's no soul. I wonder if I have that book around here. My wife, Shannon, uh, was really into this. She could find it. It's around here somewhere. I got all these fucking books all over the place. Um, there's a woman named Carol Reese David, who, um, who was one of the founders of the Polytech Society. Her husband was Reese David. He's kind of like the the more famous guy, as, as is often the case with a married couple. The 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 less talented husband's really famous, and the really talented wife is kind of unknown. Like that's kind of a feature of modernity, right? But she was a really brilliant poly scholar, like really one of the best poly scholars in the mid 1900s. And she wrote a book called The Original Gospels of Buddhism. And she was the one who really pointed out Anatta. The Buddha wasn't saying not self. He was saying no soul. Because this is an idea that's been around, you know, the spirit, that, that, that we have this soul or we have this spirit that, you know, you know, you've heard the story before that goes on to heaven. Or there's something in here that goes beyond uh, after we die. And the Buddha was like, absolutely not. First of all, we don't have any evidence to suggest that. And really what that is, is that's a big distraction from the life that you're actually living. And that was the original teaching was no soul, is that when, and that's why there's all this emphasis in the body, it's like the Buddha is basically saying that the, the, the mind, and this is actually, there's a, um, the cognitive science program at MIT has this on their website, or at least they used to. And uh, they say that the mind is what the brain does. Um, the mind is what the brain does. And so we, 
a lot of times would associate the mind with the soul, this kind of inner awareness. And what the Buddha is saying basically is that that's a product of consciousness, that's a product of the body. No body, no organ, no consciousness, no soul, no life after death, once and for all. You know, once the lights go out, lights go out. Now take with it what you will. Of course, I don't know. I, I don't know what happens when, when I when we die. I would never even try to make some sort of posit on that. I really have no idea. I'm mostly agnostic about the whole thing. But I, I do like ideas that are designed to force me to live the life that I'm actually having, which is, I think, what the Buddha was big on. He's like, listen, he's like, nobody knows anyway, and don't waste your time uh trying to think about worry about things that you're never gonna find about anyway so there's all this this is all this is to say again with why he's very emphasizing which i think is the kind of the, the beginning point of practice is he's trying to get us to be more embodied he's trying to give us to be more in touch with our bodies more in touch with the present moment more in touch with breathing more in touch with the pulse of life itself so that way we can actually live with some degree of contentment uh some degree of acknowledgement that our life actually does happen and unfold one moment at a time and it's probably in our best interest to get on board with that project rather than be distracted by all these other things and so he places a tremendous amount of emphasis on the body awareness. The other thing about the body that's not in the Satipatthana Sutra, which is a, it's amazing again that he knows as much about the body, but one thing he doesn't know about and to just kind of pull from some secular medical stuff, which I think is really helpful, is, is we do have this thing called the nervous system, the central nervous system, which is kind of the bridge between the body and the brain. And uh, the reason why there's a lot of emphasis on the body now, and one of the reasons why secular mindfulness has done so well is a lot of it has to do with the conversation around trauma and, uh, and nervous system dysregulation. And that, uh, that's really why a lot of people struggle so much in our society is their, their nervous systems are dysregulated. And so what that basically means is, you know, your nervous system has sort of two components there's uh, the sympathetic nervous system so when i breathe in every time i breathe in i'm engaging my sympathetic nervous system every time i breathe out i'm engaging my parasympathetic nervous system and what we want to be is we want to become parasympathetic dominant so that way we're more regulated we're emotionally regulated our nervous system is regulated and if we do that you become homeostatic which is just something you probably learned about in sixth grade biology. It's not really that mystical. Uh, maybe this is what the Buddha was talking about. So uh, mental health is really uh, a feature of, of nervous system health. You know, the, the, the mind and the body, uh, or the body and the nervous system, it's much more in your benefit to kind of be a, more aware of that and to kind of be more in tune with that experience rather than becoming overthinking all of the time. So as modernity grows and as we learn more and more about the body and the body system, it just becomes more and more important and more obvious that 
the reason why there's so much emphasis placed on this is it's it's tremendously valuable to actually be inside your body to live inside your body you know i i've spent like i said i just got back from biocidos again i spent almost 30 days on that land this summer and the last three months and it's just like just being away from my phone and being away from electricity, just being away from the modern world, just being in the woods for a long periods of time, I can just tell you, it just feels better. Once you get to the detox of not having your phone and your refrigerator and all your bullshit creature comforts, well, let me tell you, your creature comforts aren't that, when, once they're gone, you don't miss them. You know, I didn't miss any of them. I didn't, certainly didn't miss my computer. I certainly didn't miss my phone. You know, food was provided for me out there. I didn't really miss the, the shit food I shouldn't be eating anyway. <laughs> you know, and so it's like there is this uh, tremendous um, kind of trend in the contemplative space to do these kind of nature-based retreats because it's just kind of so good for us to be out in that natural world. All, all for these reasons of being more embodied and being more, again, also the sensory awareness or sensory clarity, we do have to realize like all the senses tasting and smelling and seeing and hearing, those are, the, the body does that. Those are organs, you know, organs hear sounds, organs taste food, organs hear sounds, see colors, you know, but of course, as soon as we take the information in, we go into the proliferating about it, but really, the majority of our experience is of an organ body variety. We have six sense doors, right? And we have number six, the mind, but that seems to be the one we're totally preoccupied with. So it's almost just like the Buddha is just trying to get us to level out a little bit more and be like, yes, yes, there's the mind, but there's other shit going on you might ought to find yourself paying attention to, might actually do you some good, right? So that's why, Again, he's always trying to get us to question what we're paying attention to. Whatever we're paying attention to, the mind will resemble that. Um, and so, you know, be careful what you pay attention to because it will affect you, right? And so we, this is why this little guy here, and I, I don't mean to be talking trash. I love my, I love my iPhone. I also hate my iPhone. You know, it's like kind of a mixed bag. Um, so part of it is trying to create that preference or or a kind of helping the mind gravitate towards a contentment. Welcome to Dharma Live Online. It's good to be back. Um, so we have been slowly dredging through this uh, teaching, the Satipatthana, which is the teachings on mindfulness, the four foundations of mindfulness. And I thought I would bring us into the uh, feeling tone, but then I looked at it and there's a couple, I want to do two more weeks on this because there's, there's a couple things I really want to, really want to cover. And the thing tonight I think is super important, very interesting, um, and also uh, actually quite helpful. And so helpful, helpful, helpful is the name of the game around here. Um, yeah, and also when you look at the, um, it's interesting they call it mindfulness uh, because the, the, the biggest section in the teaching is on the body. The body is like really the biggest part of it. And so I think I've probably said this before 
but I'll say it again, is I think we have to remember that when the Buddha, when he's using the word mind, he's including the body. So mind, body, the whole, it's all one big thing. As you notice, you know, I'm just one, you know, being. And sometimes it's helpful to break them down and talk about the mind and the body and it, it, it's okay to parse them out. But from a, from a moment by moment lived experience, I mean, can you draw a line between where your mind ends and your body begins? Can anybody do that? I can't, you know, and so it's all one big mess. So when we, when we, when we say mindfulness, we want to actually try to see if we can make sure that we're thinking about the body as well, because that's the biggest section uh, in here. And there is um, a part of the first foundation of mindfulness, which it fits in the first foundation. It's called Sati Sampajano. And what it means is mindfulness and daily activities. Now, this is really helpful, I think, because most of us uh, live, I live in the world of daily activities. I did a lot of shit today. I suspect you did too. And so it's an interesting teaching because uh, when we're practicing on a cushion or we're practicing on a screen like this, we're doing a formal, um, I would actually like to change the word if I can remember to do it. We're not, when we do sitting practice on a cushion or even like the way I'll guide you tonight, it's not really practice, it's really training. So, um, you know, we use these words, I'm probably going to use the word anyway, but I just want to be like really specific about when you sit down for 20 minutes in the morning to practice mindfulness or whatever practice you're doing, you're not practicing, you're actually training, right? Your practice is everything else that you do. And so this analogy of this way of thinking, I think is helpful because it helps us really try to bring mindfulness and bring Dharma work to everything that we do, which I think is the goal for sure. Um, at least in at least in the Buddhist tradition. So this is really clear on how you do that. So how do you bring mindfulness to everything that you do? And the Buddha gives us four four kind of reflections or four things that you can check in um, before you do anything, before you put your clothes away, before you walk, wash your dishes, before you death scroll, you know? Uh, and so the first thing that we would consider, and of course, you're not going to do this all the time. They're just, they're mindfulness practices in the sense. So one of the ways to think about a mindfulness practice is to bear something in mind. It's just kind of keeping it, you know, close bearing it in mind always bearing it in mind so that way it's not that far away we have access to these things it's kind of in the forefront of our experience it's front and center you know what's front and center and so the first one is is, is purpose which is essentially uh for what purpose am i doing this activity you know for what purpose am i doing what i'm doing and this is all fine and good when you're Actually, to be honest with you, I really like to do this when I do my, I call them chores. They're not really chores anymore. I have a lot of shit to do around the house. I have kids. I do laundry. I put laundry away. I do dishes. I clean the house. I pick shit up. I do stuff all the time. And so uh, that purpose, that that's an easy one. A purpose is to keep the house clean. 
decluttered and put things away and I like that so I do that but a lot of times um when I have downtime which I don't have a whole lot of to be honest with you uh what do you do then you know what do you do with free time or time that's usually maybe between things you know you get home you have you have a half an hour before your next thing right you know I you kind of I notice I kind of go into this hyper distracted mode you know i look at my phone i check my emails i open instagram i basically waste time when i have time i squander it you know which is like you know (laughs) sort of hesitant to admit that you know (laughs) but i think that um i've really tried to change the way that i do that where it's like okay i have you know, 15 minutes or I've a little bit of time. I try to, lately I've just been sitting or I've been picking up a book. My wife got smart. We have a, we have a downstairs, we have a couple couches and a fireplace and a, and a, and a book. And now there's all these books on it. And I've been like sitting there getting ready to pick up my phone. I'm like, maybe I should pick up a f- fucking book. You know what I mean? It just, and not even it just flip to a random page and just read just for the sake of reading. I find that it's actually quite enjoyable you know and so uh why am i doing what am i why am i doing what i'm doing for what purpose am i engaging in this activity um and i think if you ask yourself that question or just bear that in mind i guarantee you there's a lot of things you'll stop doing you're like you know i mean the purpose for this is to just be checked out I want to, or to be distracted or to just checked out or just kind of space out on the internet and just, you know, look at random shit, just like do this thing that sometimes I do on the internet or I do it on YouTube. Like, I'm just going to look in here and just see where it takes me, you know, just see where it takes me. That's how people end up in fucking QAnon. You know what I mean? They just were on the internet following things around. And before you know it, they're like, wow, man, the earth is flat. That's where that kind of shit gets you. You got to be careful. Also, I shouldn't say this, but I will because I don't want to create confusion. But lately, if you look at the Eightfold Path, you have right view, right intention, right speech, right action. I've actually been toying with, and I think actually I would almost be so pressed to translate right action as purpose. What is my purpose for doing anything? I think this word purpose is a good word uh, and I think it fits here well. And I think it's like actions just kind of like totally benign, uh, you know, but, but purpose, purpose actually I think has a positive connotation to it, you know? And when I, when I think about things in a purposeful way, usually I start to realize a lot of the things that I usually do have no purpose or they have a kind of, useless purpose you know it's like you know i'm 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 waiting to get my oil changed or i'm somewhere waiting in a waiting room for 10 or 15 minutes and what's my purpose my purpose is to kill time i'm just going to kill time i'm just going to totally completely squander the next 15 minutes so i don't have to be here because i don't want to sit in this room and wait Right. You see, do you do this? I'm I'm not the only one who does this, I hope. 
Right. So I'll go to the next one. Uh, I could go on and on. They're they're kind of a little bit. The first two are are kind of correlated. The other question I think is really interesting is 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 now the right time? Is this the right time to be doing this? Is this suitable? Um, and this one I uh, I've actually practiced a lot because um, because I work for myself and I have lots of different things to do there's certain times that aren't the time to be doing certain things. So I've gotten kind of good at like, if I have to do like some writing, like some left brain writing, if I have to write a talk or a description, or if I actually have to do some like schoolwork, you know, I have to be, I have to have a certain qual. I have to have a certain mental quality. I have to have a certain amount of energy. And lately I've been able to, to good at, as I come upstairs to do stuff, cause I come onto my computer, there's probably a hundred different things I could do. And I try to just feel into it. What do I have energy for right now? I'm like, you know what? I'll return some emails from friends. I'll, re- I'll return some low stake emails that I don't have to think about too much. I'll just get back to people. You know, I, I that's kind of what I have the energy for right now. Um, I don't have the time for this right now. And like, I try to do what I call my grind time is like nine to about noon. You know, I drop my kids off at school, I come home, it's eight, I hang out with my wife, I drink some coffee, I do a couple things, and I come up and nine to noon is like my grind time. It's like, okay, I have, I'm awake, I have energy, I'm not fucking pissed off yet. <laughs> you know, like I can actually accomplish some stuff that requires some thinking. You know, a lot of it is tech stuff, update my website, or I have to do a lot of technical stuff that's complicated, that or uploading and putting these Dharma talks on my podcast or in the course. And I know I, I owe you guys a bunch of them. Um, you know, that, that requires a kind of energy and a willingness that I have to do because it's really work. It's like, I don't like it. You know what I mean? So I, I try to find if it's the right time to do that. And I think actually a lot of people that I talk to, and a lot of times I think the reason why people are so tired and burned out is I think a lot of times we do things at the wrong time. You ever find yourself trying to do something you're like, I shouldn't, I have no business doing this right now. You know, I just don't have it. You know, and and then you end up and it, it ends up taking three times as long and it ends up kind of not coming out very well or you're just kind of not into it. You know, so it's like it's a really interesting thing to to play with is like now the right time the other thing and this is also part of the teachings on right speech some of you probably know the four gates is it is it is it kind is it timely um there's a couple other ones i'm not recalling right now but um that's an interesting thing like so like having a difficult conversation with somebody a lot of times having a difficult conversation, what makes it go smooth or better is if it's delivered at the right time. You ever try to force somebody into a conversation that they kind of, you can tell they don't want to have and it fucking kind of doesn't work out? (laughs) Or have you ever been forced into a conversation that you didn't want to have? And you're like, I already don't want to have this conversation. So this isn't going to go well. I already don't like you right now. And you want to talk about this? Right. 
Timing is so important. And I think a lot of times when you think about emotions and you think about really the mind and the whole experience of human beings, I think a lot of times we're just out of sequence. You know, we're out of time, we're out of sequence, where um, we're not, I guess to what I would say is we're not very intentional, you know? And so there's a difference, like, you know, I'm sure you're all scheduled, like we are our scheduled people, but I think a lot of times we, we schedule things without being intentional about how we put things and where we put things. And I know some of you, some people just go to work nine to five and, you know, a lot of our stuff is like, we don't really, this is irrelevant because I have to be at a certain place at a certain time and do a certain thing. But I think there's a way where we don't always, you know, we don't get enough of sleep or we don't, you know, we don't really uh, have great time management. And it's interesting when you think of the word time management, that there's actually a Buddhist teaching on this. You know, the Buddha's like, is this the right time for this? You know, and so so as you go through your day, as you live your life, you can just kind of once in a while be like, okay, for, for what purpose am I doing this? And is this the right time for this? You know, and a lot of times uh, I do things when it's not the right time because I'm, I'm, in, a, I'm in a rush or I'm hurried. You know, the, the, the I just want to get this done right and i find that trying to get something done in an attitude of mind of i just want to get this done is just kind of a bad move because i'm going into it hasty i'm going into it with a little bit of version i'm already going into it not i'm already not wanting to do it before i do it maybe now is not the right time you know i do i actually just did this a couple hours ago i have i have a I have a pretty big property. I have seven acres up here in Colorado. And, you know, I've got a garden with fences and I have donkeys and chickens and goats and all kinds of shit and shit breaks all the time. I have to take down the wood and cut the wood and fix the fence. I have all this kind of shit to do. And a lot of times I'll try to bite off more than I can chew. You know, I'll try to be like, oh, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna. And then I then end up what's happening is I end up rushing inside and leaving drills and shit on the ground and like coming out the next day being like, oh my God, I left all this shit out because I just wanted to get that one more thing. And now lately I've been like, you know what? Now's not the right time. You know, I've, I've done enough. You know, this is knowing when, knowing when it's time to stop. <laughs> knowing when it's time to stop when you're like, you're about ready to hit next episode on that fourth or fifth or sixth episode. You're like, just one more. Stop. Now is not the time. You know, it's 1130 at night. I'm not going to watch another one hour fucking episode. That's going to give me a cliffhanger in the last five minutes and suck me into the next one. I always thought that was lame. I think that's a low blow. I wish they'd stop doing that. Don't you think that's lame? You know, the show goes on and then within the last two or three minutes, they leave you with some major thing that you just got to know. I think that should be like, they shouldn't even be able to do that. I'm going to watch it anyway. You already got me hooked on the fucking show, man. Like, come on, let me get some sleep. I think that's, I think that's a lame move. Um, so purpose, time. Uh, those ones are those ones that are really good, I think, because they're super practical, right? These you'll never 
stop finding these to be helpful if you're just kind of generally bearing in mind you know why why am i going to do this and is the right is this the right time to do this the other the next one uh, is usually called biko now you call it pastor i prefer to use the word domain and this is one that's really kind of interesting it's actually a bit hard to describe so it's called staying within the meditator's domain. And here, of course, no big surprise, the meditator's domain is, in fact, the four foundations of mindfulness. It's like the Buddha's like, stay in your lane. You know, you know, so basically what he's saying is in any given moment, you can check in, where's the body? What's up with my body? How do I feel? What's up with the feeling tone? What's up with the mind state? What's up with the attitude of mind? You know, what am I thinking about? You know, I talked to a couple people uh, today. Um, I don't know if anybody else is having this experience. I am, um, which is try, which is tr I'm trying to stay non infuriated, but I don't know, man. Shit done fucking got expensive, like crazy expensive. Like, you know, they talk about 14 or 15% inflation. I'm like, some shit's double, dude. Like, a lot of shit is fucking double. Like, jelly is double. Like, a lot of shit that I buy a lot of, like a box of Cheez-Its are fucking double. They're not 14% up. A lot of shit that I buy is double. And so there's like that staying out of my domain if I'll go into the catastrophizing of like, I'm not going to be able to afford this. I'm not going to be able to afford to live in this world for much longer. You know what I mean? Like, you know, you start when you start putting jelly back on the shelf because it's seven bucks, you're like, dude, I don't, I don't know how, like, you know, how long, you know, I'm, I'm starting my, my chickens, I have chickens for for eggs, I use them for eggs, but every once in a while I look at that chicken, I'm like, how long is it gonna be before I'm gonna have to chop that fucking chicken's head off and eat it? You know, it's like, you know, I'm like, I don't really want, I don't think I got it in me to do that, you know? But I start looking at those chickens and I'm like, damn. Cause it's crazy, like, you know, you know how much, how much a chick, like if you go, if you go buy a, a baby chick, do you know how much a baby chick costs? $3. I bought 12 chickens for $36 and I've gotten hundreds of eggs off of these, you know what I mean? Of course you gotta feed them and build a fence and all the bullshit, but it's like a dozen of eggs is like, what? Six, seven, eight, nine dollars? You can buy three chickens for the cost of a dozen eggs. And so I say all of that because I get out of my domain, I get out into the future. You know, I always think of that, um, you've probably all seen it, if you haven't, you should watch it. Does anybody remember the Chris Farley SNL skit? You're going to be living in a van down by the river. You know, like my mind goes there. I'm like, man, I'm like, I'm going to be living in a van down by the river. I was at this, I was teaching this retreat and uh, there was a young girl in the group. And I told, I always tell the story because it's a funny joke. And she actually, she, when it got to her turn, she says, you know what? She's like, I want to live in a van down by the river. I was like, I was like, that's pretty cool. That's what we're, that's what it's coming to. So, you know, the alcoholics in the room will understand this one, you know, one day at a time, 
you know, and I th I think, you know, staying in the meditator's domain is really just trying to stay in the day, you know, and that brings me back to like, why am I doing what am I doing? Am, am I doing, am I, am I living my life or, because what happens is we do, we get, and, and usually the main way I think that we get out of our domain is, is, is getting into futuring. You know, we start to predict futuring, basically predicting and controlling and predicting and controlling and predicting and controlling and hypothesizing and strategizing. And what am, what am I going to do when this happens? And what am I going to do when that happens? And I don't know about you, but that creates a lot of anxiety. And also, you've made all that shit up anyway. You have no idea if any of that stuff's even going to happen. And you're totally gone. You're totally not even in the life you're having, you know, catastrophizing, they call it sometimes. I'm not too bad of a catastrophizer, but I can get into, I can get out of my domain, you know, it's like, you know, and this, that, that's an interesting one because that, that's like actually trying to, can I actually practice the four foundations of mindfulness at any given moment? So when you're doing that futuring, you know, a lot of times I'll do, I'll just like my, I have a long, long driveway. It takes me like 15 minutes to go to the driveway and get my mail and come back. Sometimes I'll just go do that and I'll just change everything. You know, I think that one of the things that's really helpful for a lot of us who are too busy is trying to build a reset into your day as many times as you can, you know, like how do you fix things in the modern world? Well, did you try unplugging it and plugging it back in? Has anybody, has anybody told you to do that with an electronic device? Yeah, you should do that with your brain. Have you untried, have you tried unplugging and plugging it back in? You know, go outside, take a 10 minute walk. It's like, that's how you do it. Like, how do you unplug that thing? You know what I mean? It's like, that's really uh, something that we can do. Um, this teaching is nice too, I like, because he's pointing to lots of very practical things that you could do every single day that you could kind of bear in mind. Why am I doing what am I, why I'm doing, why am I doing this? What, for what purpose am I engaging in this activity? Is this even the right time? Is there even a good time to be on the fucking social media app? It's probably a never good time for that. Probably a good time to delete the fucking thing, you know? And so, you know, we can kind of, you know, how am I in my domain? And I actually, because I've been in AA for a long time, use that like, you know, and I learned that early on and that one day at a time shit, man, really works. You know, am I in the day? I'm like, I'm not near the day. There's, um, I think it's, um, C.S. Lewis has a book. I forget the guy's name, but they're saying, he, say, he starts the book with saying somebody lived, Mr. So-and-so lived a short distance from his body. You know, and I think a lot of us live a short distance from our body. You know, and that short distance is, you know, that, that, that self that you're afraid you're going to experience in the future. And what am I going to do when that, situ when that moment arises? Let me strategize around that. Right. And I think that that's a, um, I think that's almost a pan, a psychological pandemic in the modern world. I find people, people really struggle with this a lot. 
you know, because because we're stressed, because you know, you know, unless you're one of the one percent, you know, you're you're always having to kind of keep an eye on the dollar, you know, and just having to keep an eye on your finances on that level is just stressful. So it would make sense that when our when our survival, and I would translate right livelihood as survival, uh, my survival instinct gets activated, then I fucking go into this space, right? You know, and so the, the Sati Sampajana was really mindfulness and daily activities. He's basically saying, just do the day that you're doing, you know, if you can. Um, the last one is a little bit hard to describe. I'm not sure what it means, so I'll do my best to unpack it. Um, it's technically translated as non-delusion, uh, which another say to, another way to say non-delusion would just be wisdom. You know, and and this one I think um, again like a lot of things in particular the word enlightenment i think wisdom in in the buddhist sense has been elevated to a status that we think we maybe don't even have it you know wisdom is like this thing that you get after you've been meditating for 500 years and you got a big old gray beard and you're living on top of the mountain i think a lot of us don't realize that we actually have you know, wisdom's a, fun a function of mind. You know, we went through the Abhidharma. Wisdom's a mental factor. So it, it's not like it's not like it's not like either you have it or you don't have it. You have it, but do you know? This is a really interesting question. Do you know what you have? What things in your life you have wisdom around, and what things you don't? Like, where in my life do I feel like I actually make pretty good choices? Where in my life do I actually do things that I mostly generally feel good about? Like you should think about that because you're all, you're all doing it. And where in my life, where in my day, where in my time do I uh, feel like I don't have wisdom? Where, where am I doing things out of purpose, out of time, out of domain? You know, where, what, what's the stuff in each day that I can maybe identify with some degree of specificity? You know, what gets me? What eats my lunch? You know, what, what thematics? What is it, is it, you know, what, what are the kinds of things that happen in my day that just throw me off, that take me out, that put me in fear, that trigger my emotions? Do you know what they are? You know, probably good to know or at least to have a sense. Because then, from a practice perspective, at least you know where your work lies or where your work doesn't lie. You're like, you know what, I'm pretty good about this. I don't need to sweat this so much. I have a bunch of stuff like that. I'm like, I'm pretty good. I'm good enough with that. I don't need to worry about it. I'll take care of it. You know, could I be better? Yes, but I, but I, but I mostly take care of it and I don't struggle around it too much. And so that's that that would be that internal voice. So when you are almost what you're doing, when you stop and pause and you say, why am I about to do this? For what purpose am I doing this? Is now the right time? And is this within the domain 
of my life as I'm seeing it now. And then almost you almost in that space, you almost stop and wait and see if if some kind of voice of wisdom emerges and either says yes or no, or maybe or says, well, yeah, maybe, maybe tomorrow for that, or maybe not like that. I think that we, a lot of times we don't have access to our own wisdom that we already have, because we're we don't, we're not actually stopping enough to stop and just give it a little bit of a listen. You know, because usually I, I notice this, you know, any any ideas I have about most things, my first or second idea is usually not good. My first instinct, honestly, is usually not the one to follow. You know, my first instinct, generally speaking, I would almost assume this is true. It helps me. My first instinct is just a reaction. You know, how am I going to react? How do I want to react to this? Whatever it is, you know, and I don't want to react to this. So can I wait? So, okay, I don't want to react. What else? What else? What else? What else you got for me? And then if you can pause and you can wait, you can give it, you know, five or seven or 10 seconds. I'm not talking about 20 minutes here, people talking like seconds. Usually you'll find that some other voice or some other idea or something might emerge from the silence of your being that's got a little bit more, hey, you know what, maybe you ought to. You know, you've been saying you've been wanting to not do this for a while now, but I think that we have to to do that, we have to just, in general, slow down, you know? And if you look at the research on this, it's actually quite staggering, you know, like, you know, by slowing down, you accomplish more, better. If you, and it, this is like pretty hard to dispute that they've, they, they've done a shit ton of research on this stuff. If you just kind of slow down, you know, you'll get more done and you'll do a better job that you might not get, you know. So there's a way in which, you know, of course, everything I just said is that's madly counterintuitive or counterinstinctual, counterimpulsive, you know, because again, rush, 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 hurry up, hurry up, go, go, go fast, get it done, got to get on to the next thing. That kind of mentality, um, you know, first of all, it's unpleasant to be in that space. I always find when I rush through shit, I do a crappy job. You know, and I'm bad. In case you haven't noticed, I'm sure some of you know, I, I, I have um, some writing disabilities i i have some like learning disabilities that still linger i am the king of typos if you've ever gotten an email from me there's a chance that it had at least one or two like really ridiculous typos in it why because i don't first of all i know that i do that but a lot of times i'm too lazy or i'm too much in a rush to just reread the fucking thing back i'm like it's five sentences dave it'll take literally 15 seconds to read this thing and a lot of times I'll just hit send. I'm like, and I always say it in my mind. I'm like, I'll hit send. I'll say, fuck it. I'm like, it's just Parker. He won't care. You know what I mean? 
it's just like you know it's like they, they 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 won't it won't bother them but if it's something else i'm like you know super uptight about it but i find that um that kind of hurrying rushing um super unhelpful and so this teaching on sati sapajano actually gives us a pretty good metric and a pretty good way of trying to do all that stuff is you know for what purpose am i doing this activity is now the right time you know is this within the domain of what's appropriate is this anywhere near today uh and can i slow down enough and pause into the moment to see if something else emerges another idea another intention another whatever will emerge from the pause of the space and it definitely will and that's really where wisdom comes in you're you're, you know you're just more thoughtful you're more patient you've slowed down right so this is interesting this is in the first foundational mindfulness everything i'm everything i'm teaching you none of this is me um and have you ever heard this before you know you've probably heard a million talks in the first foundation of mindfulness uh you know you hear about breathing all the time or even death meditation all the time but to me like when i look at because i'm always looking for shit that's going to help me tomorrow uh and i look at this i'm like this is wicked useful like I, I, I like I, I should. This is great. Like this is going to be really helpful if I can do it. Why have I not heard this, or why is this not front and center? Uh, and so it, it's all sampajano. Sometimes it's, it's translated as clear knowing, which is a bit of a wonky word, but it's just being being a little bit more clear about what you're doing while you're doing it. So this whole teaching is um, basically to know what you're doing while you're doing it. You know, actually being in the body and in the feeling, being in the moment as you do things. So let's practice some. Now, Now is the time to practice. For what purpose will we do this? Well, it's probably a whole bunch of them. So what I'm going to do, and I've been doing this a lot lately, as a teacher, a lot of teachers do this, and I picked this up, this habit up, and I don't think it's a good habit, is when we practice mindfulness, usually a teacher will select one of the four foundations of mindfulness and just practice that one. Like, tonight we're going to practice feeling tone, or tonight we're going to practice mindfulness of breathing, or whatever. It's very rare, and I find this, and I've been doing this lately, I did it at the last couple of retreats I was on, uh, to do a 20 or 30 minute practice and practice all four foundations of mindfulness. Start with the body, do the feelings. And so I almost feel like we should do that every time rather than just trying to select one piece, you know, so we get a whole sense of it. So what we'll do is I'll go, you know, we'll just, we'll go through them, 
you know, stages, uh, body, feelings, mind, mind activities, and just kind of see what happens. And then we can have some questions or talk about it a little bit, if you like. Good evening. Welcome to Dharma Live Online. Uh, very auspicious occasion. Uh, I've been using that word a lot lately. I'm getting a lot of mileage out of it. Um, it is the night after Halloween. Uh, I, I believe it's the Day of the Dead. Isn't today the Day of the Dead? Uh, so, and also, and also, we are on the death section in the Satipatthana Sutta. So, um, I mean, I don't see any way out of getting out of this conversation. Um, so, I'm going to talk about death. Um, and uh, I just want to read what it says in the Pali discourses, because it's actually pretty pretty gory so this is like what the buddha's instructions are on on death it's basically about a dead body so he says you should contemplate thus now if you can find a dead body laying around somewhere and you could do it but other than that i don't think you're gonna have much luck as though he were to see a corpse thrown aside in the charnel ground one two or three days dead bloated livid and oozing matter being devoured by crows hawks vultures dogs jackals or various other kinds of worms a skeleton with flesh and blood held together with sinews a fleshless skeleton smeared with blood held together with sinews a skeleton without flesh and blood held together with sinews disconnected bones scattered in all directions Bones bleached white, the color of shells. Bones heaped up more than a year old. Bones rotten and crumbling to dust. He compares this same body with it is thus. This body too is the same, is of the same nature. It will be like that. It will be not be exempt from that fate. Well, the Buddha didn't realize that we don't let bodies rot out inside of the woods anymore. So nobody's actually going to go through that fate. But, um, you know, you're not going to hear this instruction a lot uh, on meditation retreats or on these teachings. And so, um, you know, and I also will talk a little bit about the five remembrances because I think that fits well here. Um, and I'll just say what those are real quick. Uh, I am of the nature to grow old. I cannot escape old age, number one. Number two, I am of the nature to grow ill. I cannot escape sickness. Number three, I am of the nature to die. I cannot escape death. Four, I will be separated from everything and everyone I hold dear. Five, my only true possessions are my actions. Uh, that's a, that's a, that, that, that is from the Pali Discourses. I find it odd that it doesn't find its way into this text. Um, and so um, so th th those are kind of the teachings on Satipatthana. I'm going to talk about death in a different kind of way. Um, I don't know how much benefit there is in us doing the meditation like that, to be honest with you. But um, there's also another practice that I've done before um, that I find interesting that Stephen Batchelor actually turned me on to. One of the things that they do in the Tibetan, Tibetan monks do this every day in the monastery. And it's kind of this weird paradox of like meditating on the certainty of death in the uncertainty of the time or the cause of death. 
like it's kind of this weird paradox. We, we you know, I hope I'm not going to freak anybody out, but y'all know you're going to die, right? You know, I, th- I think you've all gotten that by now. So I think we're all going to be okay. I don't want to do one of those lame trigger warning things that everybody does now. Um, you're going to die. Sorry. Uh, and you have no idea when, and you have no idea how, right? And so that that's a really kind of odd uh, position that we find ourselves in. Um, Death, for sure, has been my, uh, I would say, my greatest teacher. A lot of people find they um, have this experience. Um, The first time I actually saw a dead body uh, was my sister's dead body uh, when I was 11 years old. And it's weird, too, because I have a son who's 11 now. So I'm having this weird thing with him where i'm like oh my i'm 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 like that's the age i was when that happened and i in my experience i feel like i was much older than that because you know 11 years old 11 year old kids are not that evolved uh, you know i love my son he's a smart kid but he's not that evolved and if he had to see you know if, if he had to see his dead sister not that he has a sister but if he did lying in a in a coffin in a moratorium I'm not sure I would be really uh, willing to, I don't know how I would negotiate that, to be honest with you. Um, and so that was, that's a really weird thing. And this I don't like, this whole, because my family's Catholic and this was in Massachusetts. You know, she was, of course, it was, I, they didn't let me go to the wake or the funeral, but they did let me go in and see her body, which I think is actually kind of a bad fucking idea looking back. Um, you know, and I went in there, and of course, she's in the casket. There's flowers everywhere. The room's beautiful. It's nice. She's got on, like, nice clothes, and she's got makeup on, and the whole fucking thing that they do. You've been, I'm sure you've seen this if you've ever been to Awake. It's fucking horrifying and totally creepy, and I can't believe people actually do it. They make them look so not dead. And I remember being in there. My family was all attention. I think it was me and my mom. I think my, I know my grandmother was there because she's the one who said it. My grandmother came up to me and I was looking at her. I was completely so blown out of my mind. I don't even know if I was scared or mad. I was probably totally fucking dissociated. And I remember my grandmother putting her hand on my hand and saying, doesn't she look good? And I was like, fucking, I didn't say anything, but I was like, actually, lady, she doesn't fucking look good. She actually looks dead. You know, and I remember just being like, this is the kind of world that we live in. This is maddening. This is just, it was just so weird. It was like a horror movie. It was like a, it was like a Stephen King movie and I was in it. Uh, and so that was the first time that I, that I saw a dead body. And, um, you know, I don't think it did me any good, frankly. I think I could have, I think I could have uh, skipped that. And I think I would have been probably better off. And then, of course, I went, as time went on, I, I'd been, because of growing up in Massachusetts, you know, I, I knew lots of people who were Catholics. I ended up eventually going to lots of Catholic wakes and also seeing dead people that weren't my sister. So it wasn't death, so it wasn't such a big traumatic loss. But I, I always thought the entire incident was weird. And then I actually saw somebody get killed um, when I was 18. Uh, some of you probably heard the story. There's a story on my podcast, a Dharma talk on my podcast from Biasitos called 30 Years in the Dharma. Uh, if you're interested, you can check that out. I kind of go through the whole, the whole thing. Um, I think Parker was actually at that retreat, um, a couple of weeks ago. Fred, you were there. Um, 
Matt, you were almost there. <laughs> um, I was in an accident. Uh, I was run down in a cornfield, uh, and actually not around this time. It was actually November, September 11th. We were in a cornfield, and, and there was a drunk driver who was swerving in and out of the corn, probably because he thought it was fun. Uh, and he actually ended up turning in where I was standing. He hit me, uh, and then hit my girlfriend who was next to me. I I was tall. I I got hit and flipped over the car. She was short. She got flipped and went under the car and got dragged about 500 feet down the road. And um, so I, you know, I, I came to, I went and found, uh, you know, her body with, I could hear the noise far away. I ran down there. And of course it was totally, uh, as, as you can imagine, kind of gory, bloody. Uh, she was barely alive. Um, that was a little different. Uh, she looked a lot worse than my sister did, actually. Um, and so that was the second dead body that I saw that was really, really close to me. So, you know, I was 19 or I wasn't even 19, I was 18 when this happened. So I, I by the time I was 18, I had had lots of really pretty severe traumatic run-ins with death. Um, and nobody ever, nobody ever actually thought to pull me aside and say, gee, Dave, gee, kid, how you doing? You okay? You know, it was just like here today, gone tomorrow, back at fucking school on Monday, trying to learn algebra. And I'm just like, are you? And so I was had this major existential really crisis, um, which actually, you know, I, I, I've grown to really appreciate that because I think it really helped me, uh, you know, I had a very, because of that, I also adopted a very punk rock nihilistic attitude, which had varying degrees of success and probably didn't do me very good. But um, also it was just like the one thing that I do actually feel like I really benefited from those experiences. I looked at the world, that society and culture, and I was just like, I want fucking no part of this. I don't know what I'm going to do, but I'm not going to college. I'm not getting a job. I'm not doing any of the shit that everybody else is doing, because if this is actually what's going on here, if this is the kind of, if this is life, if this is the world, if this is what we're up against, I need to find something else because this shit is not going to work for me. Fortunately, I had punk rock music, Scott reggae music, drugs, alcohol, marijuana, those things sufficed for about a decade. Uh, and I highly recommend uh, those things because uh, they did me really good for a really long period of time. And, and just a very rebellious, rebelling against the world, which I still really feel like I do to some degree. Um, in so many ways, it was it was it was really a dharmic experience. And I think the Buddha um, in his journey and I think all of us, you can all I'm sure you all can think of scenarios and things that you we've all been through things maybe like this, maybe not as horrifying, but we all go through these things in our life that really fuck us up and really throw us off. And we usually find that we don't get any support from anybody about it. And life goes on and it just leaves these kind of karmic knots in our system can leave a deep sense of woundedness. It just leaves us feeling really traumatized, bewildered, um, but also, and I will say this also, it opens us up to different possibilities that maybe we not, would not have been exposed to before. 
most people I find, uh, especially if you're working with me, are probably fit in this category. But I, I rarely find most people who encounter the Dharma and actually practice it in a meaningful way uh, usually always have been through some great deal of suffering. You know, why a happy, well-adjusted person would want to engage in a practice like this actually baffles me. You know what I mean? Like, if you're actually okay, like, who the hell is going to do all this crap? And so the first person who had a conversation with me about this that was meaningful was my first teacher, Stephen Smith, who I actually talk about a lot, because I still consider him my primary teacher, because he really brought me in, brought me in to the Dharma in a very big way. Uh, and when I went to uh, IMS, Insight Meditation Society, to meet him at the request of my friend's parents, he came in uh, where I was sleeping at the Berry Center for Buddhist Studies at the time. And I don't remember what we talked about. We talked for like a couple of hours. And, and a couple of things that were happening, A, I felt like it was the first time an adult was interested in what I'd been through, which was a very weird experience. I was like, you know, he was very interested. Tell me this, tell me that. Uh, he also, um, he normalized it in the sense that based on everything that had happened to, the experience I was having would make a lot of sense. He's like, well, of course you're suffering, and of course you're confused, and of course you're angry, and of course, and of course, and of course, like, how the fuck, how could it be any other way? Based on what you've been through, like, you know, you should not be okay right now. That would be weird. And, you know, uh, I was like, oh, okay. Like, it just became super normal. I was like, oh, yeah. And that was kind of like, almost like, duh. I was like, oh, yeah, like, like I probably should be a little jacked up about this. Uh, and, and then he actually said, well, there's this thing called the Dharma, and uh, there's these practices, and, you know, that a lot of times what uh, these practices, these experiences, these great sufferings, if you will, they open, a, you know, so two things can happen to the heart, you know. The heart can break open uh, into freedom and liberation and into possibilities and to wonder and to all these different ways of thinking about things in a very beautiful way the heart can break open to a whole new sense of possibility or the heart can break and we can collapse into it and we can fall into despair into shame into bewilderment into trauma into addiction into these things like you know and so i probably was there or heading there uh, but this 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 kind of position on things um there's a word they use in the Pali discourse is called samvega, which means something like spiritual courage or spiritual urgency. It's actually very much directed, directly correlated to the five remembrances, ironically. Um, and what it does is it really lights a fire under your ass, you know, because what happens, um, you know, these strong feelings of spiritual urgency or spiritual courage, these strong feelings of like, well, if this is what, you know, if these five, these, the Buddha always reflects in the first three, which are part of dukkha, right? Birth, old age, sickness, and death, you know, that's a dukkha thing again. If I'm going to die, and I'm going to get sick, and I'm going to grow old, I'm going to lose everything I care about, and the only thing that I actually possess are my actions, maybe I ought to rethink this whole life thing. If it's all going down, then why the fuck am I doing half the shit I'm doing, right? And so we can get, get that kind of 
uplifting, massive prioritization where we can kind of go, all right, well, then I'm going to, you know, I'm going to do whatever. I'm going to, I'm going to learn how to paint. I'm going to learn how to play music. I'm going to go back and get that degree. I'm going to do whatever it is. I'm going to do, because, you know, if it, if it all ends up in the same place, you know, why do we do the things that we do? Then largely it's because of society and conditioning and all these things you're probably very, very familiar with. And then I had another experience about six years ago, actually, right around this time, um, October 16th, I was in a motorcycle accident in Los Angeles, and I, I almost died. So this is the first time I was the person. Uh, and when I, I went through this experience, and I remember waking up in the hospital, and, and uh, I'll tell you, the, the whole time I felt just tremendous. I think actually, on some level, I had a a deeper sense of a Dharma transmission going through that experience. Or I would say jokingly that when that car smashed me on that motorcycle, it just knocked some trauma right out of my system. It just pounded it right out, you know, because I was like totally super lucid, super clear. And then my priorities became, you know, real. I was like, I was like, I'm fucking out of LA. I'm like, you know, I'm going to exit this, you know, against the stream situation, uh, this Noel Levine situation. I'm going to exit all these kind of very complicated, destructive relationships that I got in. I was like, we're going to move the Colorado. I was like, I'm just out. I'm going to do this. It became very, very clear. I was like, I'm going to get some land in Colorado. I'm going to build a house. I'm fucking out of here. Fuck this. And I did it with so much. It was so clear. It was, it was effortless, all of that stuff, which is which was difficult to go through with effortless because I was just like, again, I have this like, I don't know how else to say it, but I, I, I wish I could give this to people, but for some dumb reason, and probably from all the things I just mentioned, I've always had this healthy, fuck this attitude. Like, I'll walk away from anything. I just don't care. I'll leave money on the table. Like, I am willing to walk away um, because I'm always willing to take my chances with the great mystery of it all, you know? And so um, I always like it when people can get that because that's a really, I have, I've actually never really been burned by it, ironically. You know, it's always, it always, I always come up aces when I, when I, when I'm just like, you know what, I'm just, I did it with alcohol, you know? I mean, I, I went one of those rare people, I have one white coin. You know, I went to one meeting one night and I said, fuck this, I'm all done. And I walked away and I never drank again, which is pretty rare, actually. Um, and I think a lot of it is, and why i so uh, grateful for the Dharma is it's really the one thing that I can say that I've stumbled into that's just totally worked, totally helped me work through everything. You know, I, recovery was great. I love AA. I love the 12-step world. I've been in therapy. There's lots of things that I love existential philosophy. There's lots of things in this world that I like that I've embraced that have been very helpful to me. But nothing compares uh, to the Buddhist teachings, you know, to, these, to this radical, like, you know, this radical philosophical way of looking at things, this unbelievably great frame for how to, to deal with existence. You know, and 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 this insanely elaborate and precise way that you can train your mind. You know, and and this ethical 
you know, way of living in the world. It's like not even one thing. It's like this complex system, you know, for how you can actually live with your life, live your life in a way where you have some contentment, you know, you have some sense of purpose and you can, you can smuggle, you know, some sense of meaning, um, you know, out of all this stuff. And I think that that's really what we're after. And so, um, these this practice of, of death reflection or just of just recognizing it it's it's a really tremendously valuable teacher because a lot of times it can be the one thing that helps us break free from the various relate from from all the range of destructive relationships we get and we get in we get into destructive relationships with other people we get in destructive relationships with jobs and careers we get in destructive relationships with our family systems, with drugs, with alcohol. I mean, the world is a is just a radical buffet of opportunities to get wrapped up in your destructive behaviors, right? All uh, designed and all promising you some kind of sense of happiness or freedom or mitigation. That's just all for shit, you know? the world will let you down and so and at the same time if we're not monastics which i'm not and i don't think any of you are any close to being monastics and i also want to be able to embrace and to enjoy the world for what i can right have to be careful so you know like i think death is the one thing i think the great paradox of this is that um death is the one thing that will actually make you live you know that's the one thing that usually will get us to really make hard choices you know and life life just seems to be mostly a series of hard choices you know or feeling like or, or actually probably even more painfully not so much hard choices but feeling as though we don't have a choice that the I can't because I can't because I can't because and sometimes we can't because, you know, and we have to kind of find a way to make to make it work. And so, you know, the Zen people have some funny stuff around this. You know, they talk about um, this guy goes to the to the Zen master. He's having a hard time meditating. He's like, oh, man, he's like, I can't meditate. I'm having such a hard time. He goes, well, what's the matter? He goes, I'm just so worried. I'm just so worried about death. And the Zen master says, you don't have to worry about death. You're definitely going to die. <laughs> you know, and they also talk about this awkward moment between birth and death. You know, I, I really like that because, you know, if you think about it, it's this awkward moment between birth and death. And, you know, I think really like in many ways, that, that in many ways, sometimes I like to play with the idea of like, I'm just experiencing the same mind moment over and over and over and over again. And the whole goal is, can I, can I get it correct? Or can I liberate myself from just what we, what we call time, but you know, maybe I'm just in my 49th year of this big, awkward moment, you know, and it just goes on and on and on. And it just gets, it gets weirder. It gets more interesting. It gets more scary. It's just like, it just goes, it, the mind is, if you notice, it just goes, it just keeps on going, this whole thing. It just goes on and on and on. And there's, you're never done with anything, really. 
And so the Buddha saw this tendency. He's like, yeah, he's like, well, maybe, maybe it would be in your best interest to just get on board with life one moment at a time, just training yourself to be in, be in this experience, you know? Because you know this, right? This is probably no big message here tonight. You do, um, your life does happen one moment at a time. Maybe it would be, maybe, just a suggestion, maybe it would be in your best interest to just get on board with that. You know, one day at a time. One day at a time is hard enough. Let's see if you can do one moment at a time. Really try to do one moment at a time. And I find that I've been going through a lot of stuff lately because I've been worried about stuff. The world's crazy, as you know, and shit's wicked expensive. And, you know, the mind can really get worried and scared and freaked out about shit really fast. And I, and I always think, I'm like, all right, I'm like, well, what about today? I'm like, I did it today. I'm like, you know what? Like, maybe I'll just clean the fucking kitchen for now and feed my dog and, you know, pick up the, you know what I mean? It's like just getting right back to what's in front of us. And it, it, I always feel so much better when I do that. It's like, okay, like, because we get so far out, don't we? You know, we get so far out in the hypotheticals. You know, I think that's really what the Buddha is trying to point to. Like, he's like, you have to stay out of the hypothetical scenarios. You know, and the world's complicated. It's easy before you know it. You got like, you know, it's like your, it's like your desk. It's like when you got like eighteen windows open in the Google Chrome. You know, it's like, dude, like you need to shut some windows. You're gonna crash. But we do. We, I find myself. I'll get. I'll. I'll have like. I'll have like four hypothetical scenarios going, and I'll be trying to like deal with all of them. I'm like none of. The, I'm like I've invented every one of these. And I'm trying to figure out how they fit together. Then I invent a fifth one. I'm like, well, maybe I need another fucking ridiculous hypothetical scenario that'll help me get these four together. And it's just like you just keep opening them. You know, and then before you know it, you're like that Chris Farley skit again. I'm going to be living in a van down by the river. You know, it's like, you know, and that's where it always ends for me. It's like, it's like, uh, it's like terrible shit's going to go down. Things aren't going to work out and I'm going to be fucked. You know what I mean? I'm going to be screwed. I'm not going to be able to live or survive or deal with or have or get or I'm like, yeah, you're going to be if at some point you're going to be dead, you know. And it won't matter. So maybe it shouldn't matter all that much right now. Um, so I'm not going to do uh, one of these creepy death meditations, but I will do a meditation on the five remembrances because I think there's value in that. Um, and I want to talk about that last one a little bit because I think it's the first four are obvious, but the last one is I am the owner of my actions, the heir of my actions. And basically what he's saying is the only thing that you own is what you do, which is kind of interesting. Um, so what does that actually really mean? And so this is why the ethical aspect of the practice is so important is that for the most part, every time you do something, it impacts you. Or every time you don't do something, it impacts you. So a lot of the feelings that we have about life about our experience about ourselves are usually a result by of something that we've done or something that we perhaps even something that we didn't do that we wish we'd done uh, and you own those because 
I can have feelings and emotions uh, around things that are really old, three decades old. And so, so that's why you own your actions, right? And what it does is, um, and this is where I think people struggle a little bit with the practice, but I actually take a great deal of relief in it, is that, you know, like it or not, you're, you're totally 100% responsible for your experience. You know, and this is helpful because A, it helps us to get out of the blaming. You know, like I can give you all, you know, we, 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 well, my life is hard because, or things didn't work out with me because, and it's really easy to, to blame. Um, it's also easy to become defensive. And uh, the word I would use that's actually not mentioned a lot that I really come from the 12 step world is humility. I think that's really a big part of it. It's like, yeah, it's like, okay, yeah, yeah, yes, I've made some mistakes. Yes, I've done some things. Yes, I've done a whole bunch of shit I really wish I hadn't done. Yes, Dave, that's true. But so, but you fucking did it, and it's over. You know, how long is the sentence? How long do you have to beat yourself up for this? You know? And that's the game I play with myself when I feel guilty or I feel ashamed or if I still beat myself up over things that were old. I'm like, okay, like... At some point, is the time served? You know, how long do I have to suffer over this? You know? And so it helps us let go, actually. So it helps us let go, and it helps us, hopefully, looking forward to say, okay, like, if, you know, if all I own are my actions, basically, the, you know, the, 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 and this is actually well documented in cognitive science now, I mean, the secret to success is in the choices that we make. You know, in life, if you think about it, it's just one decision after another. You know, should I have tea or should I have coffee? Uh, you know, it's like like life is just constantly presenting us with decisions that a lot of times we don't even really clock or pay attention to. We're really trying to live more in present, more intentionally, there's that word, right? and really trying to say, okay, like these, these are the cards that I'm playing. This is the hand that I was dealt. These are the conditions of my life. Either I'm going to try to work with them skillfully or I'm going to be upset by them or, you know, whatever. You know, and, and reality is a strict experience. And so I was talking to this. I'll, I'll end with this because it was interesting. There's a woman, um, I think I mentioned her at the beginning. Her name is Anne Glide. She wrote this American Dharma book. And her and I, she's a Buddhist scholar. She's like, she's like, wicked smart like crazy smart and i had to push her on the end of dukkha thing i was like well what do you think about this whole end of dukkha thing because she has an interesting chapter on her book about dukkha and racism and people of color buddhist people of color have a very different perspective on dukkha than than the traditional one in fact they their perspective on dukkha actually fits a lot more with mine is that it doesn't end and um we were having this conversation about Dukkha and she was like, you know, she mentioned, she made this, she, she, she said this phrase about staring reality in the face. And I was like, that's exactly what the practice of Dukkha is. The reality, the practice of the first noble truth to embrace Dukkha is actually to be willing to stare reality in the face. Right? Without being in denial, without bullshitting yourself, without trying to put a bad picture in a pretty little frame to really actually take that on is really, really, I think, 
um, the act of that, the reality of the present moment, the reality of our life. Um, so I thought that was an interesting way to put it. I was like, oh, wow, stare reality in the face. That's, that's what I'm doing all day long anyway. <laughs> you know? So um, thank you for listening. Let's do a practice and we'll have some time to talk about this some more. I'd be curious to hear what's on your mind. <laughs>